Good morning again. Uh, this is Romy, who will have some announcements about our day today. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spirit Rock. I'm so curious. Who's new to Spirit Rock today? Wow. Okay. Well, these guidelines are for you. The restrooms are located... I have to deliver that joke better. I don't know. The restrooms are located at the far end of the building. There's also a water bottle filler, and um, a drinking fountain there. And that's next to the bookstore, which is self-serve, and you don't have to pay tax in the bookstore, which is lovely, makes the math much easier. Rick's books are all in the bookstore today. Let's see, moving closer to us, there's a sign-up sheet for Rick's PowerPoint slides that you will see today. So if you would like those, neatly write your name on the sign-up list, and Rick will forward to you the PowerPoint that we will see today. Okay, then the tea area is there. There are snacks and tea. It's uh, self-service, and there's a place for donations. And there's a water bottle filler, a sink with filtered water there as well. Okay, moving closer. The CE table is out there. Many of you, like over 40, are getting CEs today. Did you all sign in? Did you all get your evaluation? At the end of day, I'll type your name on lists. So you'll get in line um, when you, in the list where you see your name. Does that make sense? And then you will hand us your evaluation. You will sign out. And we will hand you your certificate, Claire. Thank you. That was a te- I was testing you, and you did very well. Um, okay, let's see. Moving closer. Um, I think that's... Oh, you, you can drink your, bring your liquids into this room. We'd love for you to have a cover for your tea or for your water. Liquids makes me think of food, which makes me think of lunchtime. So it's a gorgeous day. It's going to be beautiful today. You're welcome to eat anywhere on the grounds. We don't have an up a retreat, a silent retreat, up at the top today. So, for those of you that are new and want to see what the rest of Spirit, Spirit Rock looks like, we can't often go up there because usually we have silent retreats. But today at lunch, you could walk up there. So, feel free to do that. Uh, but we do have a new retreat starting today. So, just be mindful of my coworkers who are working to get the space ready for the new people coming in. Oh, also, you're welcome to eat in the meadow. Look, the sun's coming out for us right now. Um, But it is tick season. So when you come back into the building, please look around your legs and brush off ticks. Outside the building is lovely. Um, Oh, if you didn't bring lunch, if you're thinking, oops, forgot, uh, we do have Woodacre Jelly across Sir Francis Drake. So I can give you directions. You can walk or drive to Sir Francis Drake. I forgot to thank the volunteers. I'm so sorry. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, volunteers, for coming early. We set up the room. Um, They all have name tags. If you have any questions, you're welcome to ask the volunteers. Um, We're also live streaming today, so we do have people at home watching. So if you ask a question, know that it will go out on live stream. So wait for the microphone. The volunteers will bring it to you, and you just speak clearly into the mic, and it will 
go on live stream, like I said, and also on Dharma Seed as well. So know that. In other words, we'll be recording this, and um, you will have free access to the recordings of this workshop, including the guided meditations in it. Uh, and also, as I, probably Romy was about to say, I'm a longtime therapist, and so you should just be aware of the fact that what you say in the microphone will be recorded and available for others to hear worldwide forever. So not to freak you out, but just to let you know, because that's like important to know. Uh, so, you know, be a little aware of that. And if you want to speak with me privately and individually, I'm very happy to do that at the breaks and, and after we're all done today. Okay. Um, if you're having a hard time hearing us, there are assisted hearing devices in the back of the room. I think that feel oh bells. So when you hear a bell, it is time to enter the room, either from lunchtime or break time or walking meditation time. That's what the ringing of the bell means. Okay, I think I feel complete. Good job. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. Rami's super. She's mission control. He's right. just super. Have a great, lovely, wonderful day. Happy to have you all here. Thank you. Thank you. That's great. So I'm Rick Hansen. Uh, uh, you may know a bit about me. I'm a psychologist. Uh, I started meditating in 1974. Uh, most of that early meditative history was pretty funky. Uh, but I got more and more focused probably about 20, 30 years ago, actually. The arrival of children concentrates the mind, right? Uh, it's about when our kids arrived. I got involved with Spirit Rock at the time. And also for quite some time, I've been very, very... Uh, engaged with the new neuroscience and the practical applications of what we're learning about the body, the underlying hardware that is the basis for this moment of experience and the next one and the next one and the next one. So that's kind of my own background. Um, I'm a methods guy, uh, in the trenches, practical, and that's going to be our main focus today. I'm going to introduce ideas and, and information and methods uh, that the inner geek in me, uh, you know, lifelong nerd, really likes. But the main takeaway from them, for me, is practical. That's the practical import. And I think that's also consistent with the uh, lineage of Buddhism. Uh, the Buddha was interested in what was true, uh, but he was much more interested in what was helpful, what worked what was useful. So that'll be a pragmatic focus today. Um, this quotation kind of summarized the, the focus here. I was thinking that vicissitudes, changes, seem so abstract and fancy. It means when the bottom falls out. It means the worst day of your life. It means when um, the world around you is crumbling, when there's injustice and prejudice coming at you, when you get an illness, when your kid gets an illness, when what you thought was your uh, life savings in a pension fund evaporates. I mean, that's going to be our exploration today. When things fall apart. And when they do, uh, and you imagine how... Badly, things could fall apart 2,500 years ago, and certainly they can fall apart similarly today. Uh, the Buddha focused on how do we establish a, an intact, indestructible, unshakable core, is the way I would put it myself, uh, that we can draw upon when things get really, really difficult. How do we actually maintain a mind that is unshaken, 
sorrowless, stainless, and secure in the core of our being, through which pain passes, through which sorrow, anger, outrage, fear, all the rest of it may come and may go. But in the core of our being, we're not destroyed or um, overwhelmed or drowning. How to actually do that. So that's going to be our focus today. And uh, the main way to do that from the inside out is to develop inner resources of various kinds. Uh, It's critically important, of course, to do what we can in the world around us. That's a major source of functional resilience to, uh, you know get the dogs to stop barking next door so you can actually sleep at night, getting a stop sign uh, next to the the school, building out a a healthcare system that works for everyone. It's a place for doing that, also in our relationships. It's also important to intervene in the body, nutrition, exercise. Um, I was just laughing with someone that one of the major stages of life includes gimpiness. I don't know. I'm, you know, as you like athletes toward the end of a season, you're kind of play banged up, but you're still playing. So I think there's a stage in life where we're still playing, but we're a little banged up. So, you know, working on the body. That said, um, I think that developing resources, strengths of various kinds inside the mind has two special advantages. One, you can always intervene in your mind. Uh, It can be a long, slow slog to intervene out in your world, including in your field of relationships or in the body. But the mind is something we can develop and uh, uh, we can cultivate learning uh, and we can grow every day. And second, we take the fruits with us wherever we go. So I'm going to focus on resources inside the mind as the fundamental basis for resilience. My plan today is to uh, kind of zip along, uh, hold forth, uh, and then slow down periodically for discussion, uh, questions, comments, etc. Also, we'll be doing a certain amount of experiential practice today. I think that can in many ways be the most useful result from um, any kind of thing that we do. As a longtime therapist, I, I think about uh, a saying from Frida Fromm Reichman, who is a psychoanalyst, and her comment, if you know the history of psychiatry and psychology over the last hundred years, was in many ways a kind of implicit rebuke to the establishment, particularly male establishment at the time. She said, to paraphrase, The client does not need a new idea. The client needs a new experience. New experience. So while I think ideas are useful, the Buddha certainly focused on them in terms of the Eightfold Path, the first element of which is usually listed as right view or wise view. There's a place for seeing things clearly and having useful ideas. But at the end of the day, what we really care about is our experience. Moment by moment by moment, what's it like to be me? What's it like to be you each day, each minute, each breath of our lives? Okay. Uh, any? So I'll take a break in the morning. It'll be about 15 minutes. We'll take about a one-hour lunch break starting at about 1 o'clock Pacific Daylight Time. Uh, take another quick break in the afternoon. I'll end really close to 5 o'clock. I strongly encourage you to stay to the sweet end, not the bitter end the sweet end. And I also want to say really hello to the live streamers. I just think it's fantastic that we live in an age where um, we can offer 
useful ideas and methods out into the internet and, and anybody around the world with access can can get to them and we can learn a lot of things ourselves. So, hello live streamers. Okay. Any questions about the logistics? Okay. Good. Okay, great. Okay. You ready? All right, here we go. So, inner resources, resilient well-being. Resilience is the capacity to recover from adversity and to our pers- to pursue our goals in the face of challenges while maintaining well-being along the way. Resilience helps us survive the worst day of our lives and more generally it helps us thrive every day of our lives to deal with setbacks, to deal with upsets, to deal with that chronic pain in the back that kind of nagging sense of sorrow or loss related to an important relationship, and as well as just all the other stuff that happens in life. Traffic, ups and downs. Um, you know, I think about, apparently Jean-Paul Sartre had some kind of saying, probably smoking a cigarette, hell is other people. Right? <laughs> so how do we deal with all that? Right? That's what resilience is for. And resilience is not an end in itself. I think that these days resilience is kind of a big buzzword. And um, uh, uh, it's often framed, though, as narrowly related to trauma or terrible things. It's certainly for that. But we need to be resilient to manage the waves of life every day. Also, resilience sometimes is characterized as like an end in itself. But actually, it's a means to an end. We're resilient for a purpose. The purpose is well-being and contribution and being able to um, you know, feel fulfilled and to grow in this life. Resilience is a means to an end. And the end, in broad terms, is well-being. Okay? So... How do we uh, be resilient? Right? If we're going to have lasting well-being in a changing world, we need resilience. Well, what do we need to be resilient? And that's where inner resources come in. Psychological strengths, inner strengths of various kinds. Inner resources include, classically in Buddhism, the so-called three pillars of practice, being uh, wisdom, concentration, or meditative training, and virtue, sometimes described as restraint. How many of you, um, I'll say it like this, how many of you do not have a lot of familiarity with Buddhism? Come on, admit it. It's okay. All right, that's good. That's good. So I'm going to make sure to kind of translate along the way. But I also saw a lot of non-hands. So we'll just kind of keep on going too. All right. Uh, we have compassion, kindness, love, social strengths of various kinds, emotional intelligence, a lot of things that are well identified in psychology, like the executive functions, being able to regulate your own mind, uh, Secure attachment, uh, inner balance of different kinds, impulse control. These are psychological resources of various kinds. Patience, determination, grit. I think of, uh, I was a Boy Scout for a little while. My troop was a bunch of fellow juvenile delinquents like me. And we had a good time, but we were 
pretty bad. But anyway, I remember a few things, like there are 12 strings of a Boy Scout, someone here I'm sure will say the rest, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. That's all I remember. (laughs) Those are kind of classic virtues too. You know, the stuff you find in folklore. So throughout the day, an ongoing question is, what would you like to grow inside yourself these days? What would really help? And I want to name four questions that for me are a recurring roadmap or plan in dealing with things and also a way of helping other people. Uh, I'm really happy to speak uh, a fair amount today about how to apply these approaches in our work with others. Raising kids, teaching kids, supervising people, um, being a coach, a yoga teacher, a psychotherapist, working in healthcare. How do we use this with other people to help them become more resilient uh, in a challenging world? So... um, the four questions that I keep coming back to are, what's the challenge? And I'm going to get into some detail about this, especially how is the challenging landing in the person's own experience? How is the challenge showing up in their mind? What's the challenge? Where does it hurt? Second, what, if it were more present in the mind, would really help? In other words, what's the challenge is like the ailment, the difficulty, All right, what's the medicine? If you get a flat tire in a car, gas in the tank is nice, but it won't help. It's not matched to the issue. We need a spare tire or a repair kit or a tow truck or something. All right, so first question, what's the challenge? Second question, what would help? That's the money question. What if it were more present in my mind these days would help me deal with this aggravating person at work? or help me deal with the long shadow of my own childhood, or grapple with this medical issue that's bubbled up. You know, What if it were more present in my mind would really help? Or what would help me feel happier, or more confident, more willing to give a little talk at work? Or what would give me the courage to move out into the dating world again, if that's what I really want to do? Uh, what would help? What's the psychological resource that would help? And then the third question is, and this will move into the underlying uh, neuroplasticity aspects here. How do we actually grow the neural basis inside our bodies, especially the brain? How do we grow the neurological basis for the psychological slash mental strengths that will help us maintain resilient well-being? So path to do that I'll talk in more detail about, but it's a two-step process. So the third question is, how could I experience this psychological strength, this resource? How could I have experiences of it? Because that's the first necessary stage of learning of any kind. Healing, developing, growing. We have to start with an experience of what we want to grow or some kind of related factor. So for example, if I want to develop more sense of worth, for various reasons that will help me manage you know, my personal history or be more confident with other people or more willing, as Brene Brown puts it, to dare greatly, to dream bigger dreams. I want to grow more worth inside. All right. The third question would be, essentially, how can I experience more personal worth, more sense of worth, or related factors like self-compassion 
or uh, the ability to disengage from self-critical rumination. That's the third question. How can I experience what I want to grow? And then the fourth question is, how can I turn that experience, typically a very passing pattern of mental and neural mutual um, activity, how can I turn that experience into a lasting change in my brain? How can I turn that passing state into a trait of a psychological or inner strength or inner resource that I want to grow? And I'll tell you how to do that. Basically, how do I help it sink in? See those four questions? It's a great roadmap. And if you're trying to figure out, ugh, lost at sea, uh, I was joking with someone on the way in, I'd rather have a bad plan than no plan, because at least if you have a bad plan, it becomes really clear, oh, I, it's a bad plan, I need a good plan, right? Uh, so a bad plan's better than no plan, but at least this is a plan, right? Where does it hurt? What's the challenge? What would help? How can I experience it? How can I internalize that experience? How can I help it really, really sink in? That's really useful. Okay, so that's what we're going to explore in a lot of ways. Now, to develop these inner resources, we need the inner resource of mindfulness. Sustained, present moment awareness. The simple, fundamental definition of mindfulness, grounded in Buddhism, the root meaning of the word for mindfulness in the language of early Buddhism, Pali, is uh, sati, and the root of the word for sati is memory. There's a recollectedness kind of a recursive, recollected quality of ongoing, sustained presence, present moment awareness. If we're not present, right, we can't recognize the challenges and we can't recognize opportunities to experience and grow resources of various kinds. So we certainly need mindfulness. All right. Okay. So it's sometimes uh, framed, and I've encountered this myself, that this sort of stuff is like some sort of sprinkles on the frosting of the cake of life, right? It's some sort of la-di-da thing you do on vacation, right? Like, oh, the privileged people, that's what it's for. Well, the harder a person's life, the more they need inner resources. The more that the world is letting them down, the more that the world is banging on them every day, the more important it is to look for ways to experience and take in uh, resources of various kinds, to grow strengths of various kinds. Um, I was born in a pretty basic, kind of lower middle class setting, suburbs of LA. I've been, I've had a very privileged and fortunate life in many, many ways that has still had a fair amount of difficulty in it. And you can look out on the world and you can see that things can get really hard for people. Um, for me, this material is informed by a kind of hard-headed, clear-eyed take on the challenges of life, as well as, which we'll get into, the vulnerability of our brain to quote-unquote negative experiences of stress or fear or sorrow or loss. And um, so it's kind of based on that clear-eyed take that I want to explore with you what I think of as a very old-school appreciation of the importance of self-reliance. Right? doesn't mean that it's not important to do what we can out in our communities and in the world and so forth. Um, but at the end of the day, as the Buddha taught on his deathbed, his final teaching, we need to be a light unto ourselves. You know, we need to take responsibility for our own practice. Uh, 
in terms of developing strengths inside ourselves, uh, it's true. Two things are really true. One, no one can stop you from doing it. No one can stop you in the inner temple of your own mind cultivating what is wholesome and beneficial, useful, strong, and wise. No one can stop you. And no one can do it for you. It gives it traction and teeth, right? It makes it honorable. Uh, it's sometimes said that uh, the Buddha's fundamental teachings were essentially four, he called them truths. And um, <clears throat> another way of thinking of these four are that they are tasks or opportunities to recognize suffering in ourselves and others, to understand the cause of this suffering at root, which the Buddha taught had to do with craving in various forms, which I will get into and ground neurobiologically in terms of our evolution. What are the deep roots of the craving that is the deep root of suffering? The third was that it's possible actually to get out of the trap uh, and disengage from this machinery, this engine of craving uh, that uh, gets uh, also manipulated and reinforced by external forces uh, and that there's in forth a path for that, the Eightfold Path he laid out. Well, actually, the way that the language of early Buddhism is is that these so-called noble truths are really declared as truths for the noble ones. And the Buddha was really clear, contra his culture of the time, that it's deeds that make a person noble, not birth. He was quite radical in that aspect of things. It is deeds, intentional deeds of, you know, acts of thought, word, and deed that make a person noble. So he basically was saying that these are truths that are for the noble ones because it is what is noble within us that draws the, to us to these truths. And the engagement with suffering and craving and the end of craving and the path itself is ennobling. Isn't that a sweet way to relate to it? It's ennobling in some way, not in some sort of arrogant, I'm so special kind of way, but in a way that feels whew, dignified and self-respecting. And in a funny sort of way, humble as we are ennobled or, or modest as we are ennobled by this process. So that's what I hope to explore with you here, including uh, uh, for those of us and when all of us are faced with the hardest things of all. Okay. Are So far? So I want to do uh, a kind of... There we go. Push the buttons. So I want to focus on these resources today. The inner resource of learning. I had this kind of, I don't know, it was probably over a few minutes or days when I was about 15. I know more or less when it happened because I was reading Dune, the science fiction novel at the time, whose main character was also 15 and at the time the, where the book starts. And that book was very much about what I'm about to say, which is uh, I was miserable, I was unhappy, I was neurotic, really I was. I was totally awkward with other people. Uh, my family life was not abusive, but for a lot of reasons it was kind of crazy. And I just was despairing, you know, like you can in a real way when you're 15 years old. Like, wow. 
Um, and I didn't know what to do. And then it just kind of landed on me that no matter how bad the past was, or even the present moment really sucked, I could always grow and develop and learn from here. Any single day, I could learn a little bit. I could develop a little bit. I could grow a little bit. That was incredibly hopeful. Because it meant that the future, as some say, the undiscovered country, right? The future uh, was full of opportunity that was within my own power to learn and grow and develop. Fantastic. Learning, one of the most important things of all. And then I realized also that if, wow, if learning is the superpower of superpowers, right? It's the strength of strengths. Because through knowing how to learn, we, we, in the broadest sense, we grow the other good things we need in this life. Wow, then learning how to learn is maybe the most important learning of all. Right? See that? So that's the, that's the inner strength of cultivation. Knowing how to help yourself move through your day with the steepest possible growth curve as you go through your day. That's fantastic. And that increment, based on knowing how to grow and learn each day, that little extra amount on that day may well be small. But day after day after day, it means that the course of a person's life starting here is, it doesn't just go from here to here, but goes from here to here. That we steepen our growth curve and our healing curve as we go through life. That's what cultivation's about. And it's really struck me as a guy's in the growth business for about 40 years now, one way or another, how little attention people pay normally to the how of cultivation, the actual how of development. So that's one of the things we're going to focus on, especially in the in the beginning here. Also, in a way that relates to our three fundamental needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection, which I'll talk more about later, which are loosely, or the management of which is loosely related to the three-stage evolution of the brain. It's reptilian brainstem, mammalian subcortex, primate human neocortex, related loosely to avoiding harms for safety, approaching rewards for satisfaction, and attaching to others for connection. I will repeat all this at length later on. Loosely related to that, I'm going to focus on inner resources for safety, for satisfaction, and connection, in particular, and summarized as, growing calm, contentment, and confidence. That was the day right there. You can go now. I'll sign off on your CE certificates. It's all good. It's good, right? We're, we're done, right? We're just, no worries. Okay, so that's what today's going to be about. All right, any questions or comments so far? And if you want to speak, it would be great if you could use the mic for everyone, including the folks live streaming. Questions or comments so far? Anything? You under, you're okay? It's clear? Any questions? No? Good? Oh, that's a thumb. Okay, thumbs up. Good. Question, no questions or comments? All right. Let's get going then. So, what do I want to talk about? All right. Here we go. So, how do we actually do it? How do we develop the superpower of superpowers? Learning, in the broadest sense. I want to say, first off, that cultivation is okay. There is kind of a misunderstanding that, in my view... How do I... Good, I'm not going to... I'm going to say this now. Good, because I'm not going to say it later. I think there's a kind of misunderstanding that's inadvertently crept into the mindfulness world. 
and also related territories of sort of non-dual stuff, you know, including in psychotherapy. Wonderful stuff. But here's the misunderstanding. The misunderstanding is that all we need to do is simply to witness the stream of consciousness. And somehow, magically, through witnessing alone, through just open, choiceless, bare witnessing, that all of our, you know, quote-unquote negative qualities, you know, our our old traumas, our uh, addictions, our inclinations, you know, the the pain uh, and the and the sorrow inside us will somehow clear away and we will somehow also simultaneously develop um, inner strengths of various kinds, including wisdom and concentration and virtue. I think that's a deep misunderstanding. We can be mindful while alongside that mindfulness, releasing what's problematic and growing what's beneficial. I think of the mind, uh, which means as well, the body and its brain as kind of like a garden. And we can relate to this garden in three ways that are useful. First, we can simply witness it. We can observe it. We can understand it. We can be with it. Maybe we can explore it. We can explore our own experience. We can disentangle the threads of the tapestry of experience. In the process of that, what we experience might change, but we're not directly trying to nudge it. Being with the mind. I think that's the most fundamental practice. Some, often, in fact, sometimes, certainly, it's all you can do. You could, all you can do is ride it out. Ride out the storm. Try not to make things worse. Just be with what's there. And as practice matures, increasingly, we just be with what's there. Moment by moment by moment. It's great. But that's not the entirety of the path. Most of the Eightfold Path, if you think about it, is about not just being with what's there, but working with what's there in one way or another. And that's where wise effort comes in. Where, second, we release what is painful or harmful for ourselves and others. We let go. We release tension from the body. We vent emotions. We release beliefs or ideas that are harmful or painful for ourselves and others. We let go of unwholesome desires. We release. That's the second great way. If the mind is a garden, we need to pull weeds. And third, we need to plant flowers. As any gardener knows, if you don't put flowers where you have pulled the weeds, the weeds will come back. Nothing wrong with weeds. I've had multiple people say, Rick, there's nothing wrong with weeds. I agree, nothing wrong with weeds. That said, you know, get the Bermuda grass out, plant the, plant the flowers. Okay, so and that's where we cultivate beneficial, wholesome things like virtue, concentration, and wisdom. All right. All three are really important, including cultivation. I'm going to focus on cultivation because I think it's kind of like the forgotten stepchild in a lot of uh, things, including spiritual practice and also in a lot of uh, you know, focused efforts on helping others, like coaching and psychotherapy. How do we actually help people cultivate what's beneficial? Um, And here I'm putting up some monks, you know, some monastics at Spirit Rock who are talking about the value and the all rightness of cultivating the good. Uh, Mindfulness is to be present in all three ways to engage the mind. We're mindful as we just be with what's there. We're mindful as we let go of what's there. We're mindful as we let in what would be beneficial and helpful and enjoyable for ourselves and other people. Okay? That framework, let be, let go, 
let in is a fundamental framework. And it also gives us a roadmap because very often what happens, especially when we're dealing with something painful or difficult, is we start by letting it be. We be with it. We explore it. We open to it. We bear it. It helps to have resources to be with our experience, like distress tolerance, the term in psychology, or a kind of inner stability. Otherwise, opening to experience can be like opening a trap door to hell. We need to be resourced to be able to be with experience. And then at some point, it kind of feels natural often to move into releasing, to shed the tension, to let it go, to disengage. My father, born in North Dakota in 1918, passed away just a few years ago, nearly 97. He had a little gesture that came from, I think, his background, growing up on a ranch and being a cowboy, finally getting interested in fishing game in the Depression. He became a zoologist eventually. But he had a little gesture. He said, Rick, don't fuss with that. You're just, you don't need to fuss with that. It was like, you just, you just don't need to fuss with that, right? That's letting go, releasing. And then receiving. Then there's a shift in the third step here. Let be, let go, let let in. Where we let in something beneficial, helpful, often matched to what we let go of that we can receive into ourselves. So there's a natural rhythm of letting go, letting, uh, letting be, letting go, letting in. And as we let in, then we have more resources inside that help us be with our own experience and be with the depths of our mind, uh, including the scary stuff down there in the basement, even more deeply in a wonderful spiral of growth. Okay? Kind of framework here. I'm going to focus on letting in, but it's, but it's in the context of the others. All right. So, as the Buddha said, it's okay to grow the good. Think not lightly of good, saying, it will not come to me. Drop by drop is a water pot filled. Likewise, the wise one, gathering it little by little, fills oneself with good. One of my favorite quotes from the Buddha. Okay? So, Research on twins, separated at birth, identical twins, then raised in different situations, and other related research suggests that, particularly during adulthood, about 70% of the factors shaping who we are and become are acquired. They're not innate, baked into DNA. 70%. 70% of the variation in adult development is unrelated to heritable factors. That's the formal way of saying it. In the nature-nurture uh, discussion, especially during adulthood, uh, so-called nurture, which really means how we nurture ourselves, as well as how our environments affect us, is the biggest player in terms of the trajectory uh, that a person's life takes. Wow. That's full of opportunity. In other words, who we are becoming is highly influenceable. And it goes to responsibility. What are we going to do to shape our own learning, our somatic, emotional, motivational learning over our own life course or help others to do that too? You see this right here? 70% hardcore research, 70% ballpark uh, uh, on average. Now, for some people, their heritable factors play a bigger role because, for better or for worse, 
maybe they're wildly talented or there was some significant disability that has a genetic origin. Uh, other people sometimes, uh, that which is not heritable, their environment, let's say, plays a bigger role in their life. Maybe some devastating trauma occurred, you know, an environmental uh, origin and plays a bigger role. But on average, it's about 70%. Wow. That's within our own influence in principle. Great. To develop, to acquire inner resources of various kinds, including happiness, love, wisdom, inner peace. To do that, we need to change the three pounds of tofu-like tissue inside the coconut. Right now, the organ we're talking about is trying to figure out the organ we're talking about inside you right now. Holy moly, right? So, how do we get those green balls into the brain? It's a really practical question, isn't it? Well, this is a real brain. Uh, it doesn't look like much. I always think of it as like rotten cauliflower. It kind of looks like that. It's sort of gushy. Uh, you know, it's just not very impressive at all, except um, in many ways it's considered of all the objects known in the universe, including really exotic things. It's the most complex of all. Inside your head right now, about 200 billion little cells, about half of which are neurons, 100 billion or so, maybe a little less, maybe more closer to 90, bi- 90 billion. That's still a lot of them. Uh, typical neuron makes about five, several thousand, let's say, on average, connections with other neurons. Well, got close to 100 billion times several thousand. That means we have several trillion, several hundred trillion little microprocessors inside our head the little synaptic connections between the neurons sparkling away. I think it was Charles Sherrington who described the brain as an enchanted loom, weaving moment by moment by moment the mind, right? So it's pretty amazing, isn't it, to kind of get viscerally, wow, this moment of hearing, seeing, tasting, touching, smelling, remembering, wanting, enjoying, suffering is being produced in its final pathway of causes by these little gooey, dinky cells active inside my head. Wow. For me at least, it's like a wow. And also a sense of responsibility. How do I help it from the inside out do its thing as well as possible? So... To change the brain for the better, as I said earlier in those four questions, is a two-stage process. There's a kind of famous saying, which I'll quote in a minute. Yeah, I'll do it now. Neurons that fire together, wire together. This is from the work of the Canadian psychologist Donald Hebb. Neurons that fire together, wire together. Two stages. So we can describe these stages in various ways. Technically, neurologically, we could say encoding, initial activation, and then consolidation, which is a process that can take hours, days, and even weeks for its f- full development. Uh, in our, you know, having read a lot of science fiction and just kind of thinking this way, activation, installation, activation, installation, or state to trait, state to trait. Or to use the garden metaphor, seeds, that's activation, landing on the surface of the garden, and then with fertilizer and water and time and help, 
installation, rooting inside the garden itself. This is the fundamental two-stage process of development. There are many mechanisms of neuroplasticity. There will be no midterm, fear not. Uh, I'm just going to leave that slide up there just to give you a sense of how many different ways there uh, is what's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity. How many different ways the nervous system is designed to be changed by the information flowing through it, which is the basis for the experiences that we're having. Right? Existing connections become more sensitive or less sensitive, new connections form, blood comes to busy regions, uh, so literally they get thicker, like building a muscle uh, in our body. Uh, different little strips of atoms inside the wounded up molecules of DNA, those little strips being genes, get expressed or silenced in different ways depending on the experiences that we're having. Ebbs and flows of neurotransmitters, oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, etc., etc. So many ways in which we're able to be changed by our experiences. Sometimes people talk about neuroplasticity as if it's some new invention, breaking news. No, it's been understood forever, going all the way back to Hippocrates, certainly a couple thousand years ago um, in ancient Greece, that if we learn anything, if we learn to walk instead of crawl, if we learn to speak, if we learn how to manage a tricky relationship with another person, something has to change in the body. Otherwise, we're left with magic. I believe in magic. I'm a transcendentalist. I think there's stuff outside the natural frame. I'm going to stay inside the natural frame of ordinary conditioned reality for the purposes of this workshop. Inside the natural frame, certainly, uh, mainly, if not entirely, the basis for our growing and learning is underlying physical changes of structure and function inside our own bodies, particularly the nervous system and its headquarters, the brain. You ready? Okay. I'm going to get practical really soon. So we become more uh, grateful, compassionate, resilient, and so forth by having experiences of these which we um, uh, are changed by over time. Two-stage process. We have to experience what we want to grow, and then we have to help it change us. Experiencing does not equal learning. This is the dirty little secret in psychotherapy and coaching and parenting. You know, and frankly, we've all had the experience ourselves, right? We, um, we're all super mellow and chill. We're like meditating or doing yoga or something. Or we're interacting with someone and we say to ourselves, you know, from now on, I never should use that word again or I should always use this word or I need to be different. Or... Uh, you know, we go through on some weekend workshop, get a lot of value, a lot of resolutions. An hour later, a day later, same old, same old. Flat learning curve. Because, by definition, if the experience does not lead to a physical change, there's no lasting value. All that money left on the table. No positive change whatsoever. And as a guy who's just been, I've been an official therapist for 30 years or so, was doing human potential stuff for 10 years before that, uh, 15 years before that, actually. Um, I just think there's this kind of weird arrogance that somehow thinks that, well, if we throw enough mud on the walls of our mind, something will stick. If we help people have useful thoughts, 
or sensations or intentions or emotions or help ourselves, something will stick. Well, something does stick, but a lot of research shows, especially for probably two-thirds of the population doing any particular thing, um, it doesn't really have much lasting value. Wow. How do we help it have lasting value? There's, I think, not much opportunity in helping ourselves or others have groovier experiences. Where the opportunity is, is helping ourselves and others actually be changed for the better by them in ways that are lasting. How do we steepen the conversion rate from beneficial experience to beneficial trait? Right? That's what I want to talk about here. In other words, how do we steepen our learning curves in life? Imagine anything we want to develop. Happiness, love, wisdom, inner peace, commitment to exercise, commitment to sobriety. What do we want to develop? That's on the y-axis, the mental resource side. Some people, it's downhill. <laughs> you know, they're, I don't know what, unhappier or less self-regulated, less wise at the end of the day or the life than they were when they started. Then there's someone whose learning curve is flat. Not going downhill, but not growing or gaining. Then there's linear growth. That's good, right? Over a day, a week, a life. And then there's exponential growth. People who are learning how to learn along the way. So I want to focus right now on how to... Uh, really get the third and fourth curves going. What can you do to steepen your growth curve? As I said earlier, I think of learning as the strength of strengths. It's the one we use to grow the rest of them. So I want to do an experiential practice with you. And I think we'll take a little break and I'll come back and unpack it. So I want to give you a taste from the inside out of... um, the fundamental process of self-directed brain change. That's a fancy way of putting the fundamental process of helping yourself gain as much as possible from the experiences you're having. So I'm going to do this first experientially, then we'll take a little break, and then I'll come back and kind of explain a fundamental framework for cultivation, which we'll then use for the rest of the day, and hopefully you can use in the future, to develop and grow the inner resources we want. Okay? So like any, anything I say today, feel free to ignore it entirely, blow it off, disagree, or especially the experiential practices, I'll offer suggestions, various prompts, find what works for you, and feel really free to shift in whatever direction you want. All right. So also think of this as like three little experiments. We'll try to do something with the mind, and then we'll see what happens. So it's win-win, right? Even if it all goes to kaflui, you'll learn good things from the process. All right. Ready? Okay, great. So first off, notice something already beneficial in your stream of consciousness. You're not trying to make anything happen. You're not creating an experience. Kind of maybe notice, oh. Maybe there's a basic sense of well-being. A really simple one to notice is that as you exhale, there's an inherent relaxation because the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system regulates exhaling and therefore the heart rate slows a little bit as we exhale and therefore we relax. That's always happening. You can just notice that. You might have a sense of connectedness with other people or just kind of a you know, background sense of uh, warmth towards someone in your life. So I'll be quiet for a moment as you identify 
notice something already beneficial in your in your mind stream. Could be simply a sense of vitality in your body, strength or will. Whatever you like. And then once you identify it, bring it into the foreground of awareness and in effect take it as take it as your object of meditation for the next minute or so. Stay with it. Get a sense of this experience in your body. What's it feel like? Can you open to it? Stay with it. Can you enter into it with a sense of it spreading and entering into you? Okay, that was the first one. A typical neuron is firing five to 50 times a second. Millions, sometimes billions of neurons fire in synchrony with each other many times a second. A lot can happen in a single breath. The problem is so often we're having something beneficial occurring. We're experiencing something useful, but we move on from it within seconds, before it has time to sink in. So I'm going to slow this down a little bit with you. Normally in the flow of life, we take in the good over the course of a breath or two. Five, ten, twenty seconds. But in this setting, I'm going to slow it down so we can really get good at it. Okay. So let's try it again. Now, if you're up for it, create for yourself an experience of gratitude or related feelings of gladness, bringing to mind something you're thankful for. Blessings you've received, good fortune, people you're thankful for in your life, maybe the beauty of the world. In other words, help yourself have an experience of gratitude or related feelings of happiness and gladness. And then once you're starting to have this experience and you're helping the idea of things you're thankful for become a feeling of gratitude, once you have this experience, now we'll move into the second necessary stage of learning in which you're internalizing this experience by staying with it, taking it as your object of meditation.
There are different ways to enrich an experience, to help it be internalized. For example, you can be aware of what's personally meaningful or relevant about it for you. Why is it important for you to become more grateful? Or you can deliberately explore different aspects of the experience. What's novel or fresh or even surprising in experiences of gratitude? Also absorbing this experience, intending and sensing that it is sinking into you. Gratitude is spreading. You are giving yourself over to gratitude to help yourself become more grateful as a trait. That was the second experiment, gratitude. It's very natural for the mind to wander. This is where mindfulness training is really helpful because it helps us keep the spotlight of attention on what we want to take into ourselves. Attention is like a spotlight in a vacuum cleaner. What it rests upon gets drawn into us. So with mindfulness training, we get better and better at, main, at sustaining the experiences that are helpful to us and disengaging from the ones that are not so helpful, shifting the spotlighting vacuum cleaner to something else. Okay. So let's try it again. All right. um, now, compassion or kindness, something warm-hearted. If you could, create an experience of warm-heartedness. Bringing to mind beings you care about. Could be a pet, a friend, a child, a group of people. Um, And start to help yourself have some feelings of compassion, kindness, or love. And then once you start to have the experience, let's move into installation by enriching it, staying with it. You might experiment with, can you turn up the intensity of the experience? One way to do this is to have a sense of it pervading your mind in all directions.
you can increase the neurological internalization of an experience by embodying it. You might shift your body in a position that's more open-hearted, perhaps, or maybe put a hand on your heart or your cheek to strengthen this experience. You can also help your brain be more sensitive to this experience, more efficient at absorbing it, in effect, by focusing on what is rewarding about it, what feels good about being loving or kind, friendly or compassionate, what's enjoyable or meaningful about it. might be a sense of being lived by, lived by love, giving over to it, letting love be the current that carries you along. Okay, that was the third experiment. Uh, so in a moment we'll take a break and then when you come back I'll, I'll kind of explain what was happening there, including in your brain. And, and here, right here though, we had a very simple direct experience, this two-stage process, experiencing, internalizing, experiencing, internalizing. And to realize there, the, that how we relate or engage our experiences can increase their lasting value, can increase their impact on us again and again and again. Okay? So you want to take a break? We'll come back. Please come back in 15 minutes. Uh, it's 11.25 or 25 past the hour for live streamers. See you then.
Okay, welcome back. Questions, comments, how was that practice for you? What did you learn? What did you observe? How was it? Questions about it? Great. Sharon, and they'll bring you a microphone if it's okay. Sorry about that part. Microphone helpers coming up. Great. It's good. Sharon over here. If you could put your hand up, Sharon, he'll, uh, Dick will see you there. Okay, great. So I've done this practice before, but each time I get a little more awareness about it. And I found that notice was pretty easy to stay with. When I got to create, gone. I just I started with it and faded into nothing. Then when I got to create, it was easier, could fall in, could find something to connect to. So I was just wondering if you could elaborate on if you know of what might be going on, if there's less practice in the brain with one, so you don't, you know, there's not as many neural networks to go there, or? Are you saying that um, it was easier to create the experience of compassion and kindness than gratitude? It was easy to notice. Yeah. It was easy to go in and let that in. It was easy to create and feel that. But when I got to create gratitude and gladness, it yeah. started and then whoosh, faded yeah. away. Well, that's okay. So I'll say it again, make sure I get it. Um, some, sometimes, well, I'll say it like this first point. Uh, being able to self generate some state of being. A useful thought, intention, attitude, um, capability is central to coping, resilience, dealing with life, and spiritual practice. It's okay to deliberately get the song playing inside the inner iPod. People say, oh, you're manipulating your mind. I say, so what? Our mind is being manipulated all day long, mainly by other people who don't have the best intention sometimes. Why not manipulate the mind skillfully, right? Why not get good songs playing there in the inner iPod? So um, that's the heading of create. Now, we want to be careful of the pitfall of getting overly manipulative of the mind, fake it till you make it, fix it, and all the rest of that. On the other hand, being able to deliberately mobilize a uh, certain wise view or wise intention or wise effort is central to, central to Buddhism, clinical psychology, and just everyday functioning. So there's a place for being able to self-create some kind of experience or another. All right. On the other hand, most of the time, when we have an opportunity to take in the good, to grow something beneficial inside ourselves, we're already experiencing it. And the opportunity is to not waste it on our brain. We already feel connected in a casual, friendly way with the hot dog vendor. We already have a sense of completion and gratification when we finish a little task. The dishes, the laundry, and email. We already are feeling that. right? Maybe we're already having a sense of, wow, what a beautiful day. But typically, that washes through the brain really quickly, like water through a sieve, while negative experiences, because of the brain's negativity bias, get caught in the sieve. Or as I put it metaphorically, we've got a brain that's like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones. 
So instead of wasting the experiences we're already having, we can slow it down and come into a kind of intimacy with our own experience, a sort of receptive intimacy. And with practice, you'll, you'll experience the sweet spot where we are receiving what is beneficial without clinging to it, without turning it into a thing that we try to control, because then that crushes it, it kills it. But there's a place for a kind of gentle encouragement or stabilization of helpful experiences so they have a chance to really land. And we know this conceptually. We don't often experience it directly, but we know that we're trying to help ourselves change for the better. And we're trying to help uh, lasting changes of neural structure and function to occur. That mainly happens with what we're already experiencing, which means that Every hour and every day is full of opportunities. Most of them small, most of them fairly brief, but still real. They're not more than what they are, but they're not less than what they are. Full of little opportunities to take in the good. And I think that's incredibly hopeful. And the harder the life, the worse the life, the more uh, injustice and mistreatment is coming, the more important it is to do this oneself or to help others do it themselves. That's kind of the context here. That said... Getting that song going in the inner iPod, I'm going to mix my metaphors here, is sometimes like trying to light fire with wet wood. It just won't ignite. Or you get it going and it just won't last. Sometimes that's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. Just like your your moon or was in Scorpio or something. It just wasn't your moment to drop into gratitude at will. Coach Rick says, yo, gratitude, now. And it's like, uh, it's not happening, you know, right? Or you, you try, maybe you think, okay, I'm going to experience loving kindness for this person, and you go, nope, can't do it, not authentic. <laughs> I, I can move toward not hatred, but <laughs> kindness, forget it, you know what I mean? Right? It just isn't happening. And then what does it mean? Um, sometimes it means nothing. Sometimes, though, it means, huh, that's interesting. If you can't self-generate, some useful kind of normal range of special experience, especially with repetition, it suggests that the trait of that may not be as strong as you'd like it to be. In other words, there's there's a cycle that moves from state to trait. We grow beneficial traits by having states of that experience. And as we have states of, let's say, gratitude, we can then use that to reinforce the trait of gratitude on the basis of which it's easier to have states of gratitude. See that positive cycle? It's really good. Um, So sometimes there's a bit of a clue. Hmm, I can't mobilize or sustain this particular experience. Hmm, that might be something to focus on. And and then you're just in the detail of that and why that might be and so forth. Uh, There are a lot of methods for being able to create experiences and to kind of stay with them. no, I didn't invent them. They're available out there. Uh, you know, the, a person could draw upon if you're trying to grow a particular trait inside yourself. But the fundamental process is really simple: have it, enjoy it. You know, experience it, internalize it. Experience it, internalize it again and again. Okay, great. Yeah. Good. Okay, good. Other great right there. So microphone runner. Oh, good. Okay. Right there, great. Good, thanks Richard. 
Thank you. I was just um, wondering if you could say more about uh, below it, sort of these three steps, have the experience, enrich it, absorb it. Can you tell us a little more about what the difference is or tell me more about the difference between enrich it and absorb it? Great. What a coincidence. That's my next slide. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, um, so uh, I have a framework. I use the acronym HEAL, have, enrich, absorb, link, that for me summarizes the factors that we can mobilize inside our own minds to maximize the gain from the exper- gains from the experiences we're having. In other words, to steepen our own growth curve, healing curve, learning curve through life. So that's the framework here. What's in this framework, I didn't invent. You'll hear me just listing things that, oh, yeah, I do that already intuitively, or oh, that's why my third grade teacher was awesome. Actually, for me, it was a fourth grade teacher. Mrs. Hall, thank you, wherever you are. Uh, fantastic. You realize, oh, that's why it works. Right? But we, the thing is, though, we don't tend to do this systematically multiple times a day. Right? So have is... Notice it or create it. Two ways to have the beneficial experience. Notice it or create it. Sidebar, I have a ton of freely offered material about this on my website. My name, Rick Hansen, S-O-N, dot net. You can see a lot more detail there. Um, Also, the book Hardwiring Happiness or Resilient goes into this in some detail. But the essence, the essence, the practical takeaway is really simple. Have it. Enjoy it. So start with having, and then the enjoy it phase, the installation phase has two aspects, enriching and absorbing. What's the difference between them? Experientially, enriching feels like help the experience last and be big in your mind. And I'll go in momentarily into five different ways to do that that have good research behind them. Absorbing feels like receiving this big experience into yourself. That's what it feels like. In practice, they kind of mush together. But as I said, I'm a methods guy in the trenches. I'm interested in resourcefulness. What can we do to maximize the lasting beneficial impact of our experiences? That's, so I'm looking at any single anything that could help. Enriching and absorbing. And what I've just described is the subjective experience, the, the sense of enriching and absorbing. Objectively, enriching means, in effect, mobilizing a sustained, um, dispersed, and intense pattern of neural activation that underpins the experience we're having. Okay, And absorbing objectively means increasing, in effect, the sensitivity, the efficiency of the recording machinery of the brain. In other words, helping the brain be more efficient at turning the current pattern of activation into a lasting change inside. For example, under the heading of absorbing, I said, especially I think around compassion, the last one, kindness, warm-heartedness, love, um, being aware of what is rewarding about the experience will help your brain become more receptive to it. 
In other words, more sensitive to it, more efficient at converting that pattern of activation into, over time, consolidated as a lasting change. Focus on what's rewarding, what feels good about the experience or is meaningful about it. Well, interestingly, when the sense of reward in an experience grows, when it increases, so does activity in the brain of two key neurotransmitter systems dopamine and norepinephrine. Dopamine tracking reward a little bit, somewhat involved with the experience of reward, but mainly tracking, sort of like informing the brain, yep, this is rewarding, yep, this is good. And norepinephrine in the brain functioning as kind of an alerting and orienting uh, neurotransmitter that essentially says, this matters, pay attention. Wake up. Here it is norepinephrine. So as we focus on the sense of reward in an experience, what's enjoyable about feeling loving, what's meaningful about compassion or kindness or friendliness, right? What's rewarding about that, as that happens, the activity of dopamine and norepinephrine increase, particularly in a key part of the brain that's the front end of much of our learning, the hippocampus, this key part of the brain, two of them technically the hippocampus, so as dopamine and norepinephrine activity increase in the hippocampus, that flags the pattern of activation at the time that is the basis of the experience, flags it as a keeper for prioritization as it moves into long-term storage. That's kind of the machinery deep down in the bowels of the brain of this one aspect of, in effect, sensitizing the brain to be more receptive to a key experience through focusing on what's rewarding about it. So that's kind of the difference between enriching and absorbing. Um, I move through them sequentially because time is sequential, at least ordinarily. Um, But uh, in practice, they sort of mush together. But it's helpful to kind of tease them apart to pay attention to them. And, And that strategy, by the way, of sort of teasing apart the elements of experience or teasing apart key factors, it's not merely semantic or intellectual. The Buddha used that method all the time. Because through teasing things apart, we become more competent with them. And then we can put them together. There's this line, differentiate to integrate. It helps differentiate. So that's enriching and absorbing. And then there's the optional step of helping yourself grow and learn. The fourth one, linking positive and negative together. This is the familiar experience. We've all had it. If we work with other people, we do it fairly routinely with people where you're aware of two things at once or your your attention is moving back and forth quickly between them. For example, there might be old feelings of being left out and unwanted, let's say, unloved, off to the side. But in the foreground of awareness is a big experience of feeling included, seen, and wanted and cared about by other people, let's say. When we're aware of both of those at once, quote-unquote negative and positive, and if the positive is bigger, it will associate to the negative. Neurons that fire together, wire together, and gradually soothe it, put it in context, ease it, even eventually replace it. That's the linking step. Uh, For example, uh, if um, we are mindfully aware of our pain in a spacious field of awareness, that's linking. Because the pain is associated with 
a spaciousness of untroubled awareness. Awareness itself is never tainted or harmed by what passes through it. It's when we're glued to the screen that we reinforce the negative. When we disidentify from it and step back from it and be with it in a field of spaciousness, we are then associating that spaciousness. We're linking that spaciousness to the sorrow, the pain, the anger, the desire, whatever that is moving through awareness. That's linking. Talking yourself off the ledge. You know, Our daughter's friend in junior high school said to her, Laurel, remember your happy place. <laughs> you know, when we... <clears throat> remember our happy places, we're linking, right? You know, um, okay, good. Linking. There are ways to do linking skillfully. I go into a fair amount of detail about it. The key is to not get sucked into the negative and to keep the positive bigger. And then there are details from there, but those are really, really central. Uh, linking is optional because it's not necessary for learning. In other words, for installation, it's not necessary. Um, I think linking is necessary for a full healing of trauma. Okay. But in a broad sense, linking is not necessary to grow resources. Okay? Also, linking is optional because sometimes as soon as you think of that thing, you're sucked in. Right? Okay? So I can see hands. This is a key topic. So I want to say three things. So I'm, I've addressed your question. And I can. Okay, good. So I'm going to say this thing about dealing with the old crud. Okay, three ways to deal with it, if you think of it strategically. Let's say, uh, in my own case, not traumatic, but a lot of yuck. Uh, A lot of reasons why, as a kid, I felt unwanted and left out. You know, there was a, a big hole in my heart. The absence of the good can have as much impact as the presence of the bad. Even more sometimes, when you're growing up. So... Without addressing the old pain or the old material, including from last week, right, or whatever might arise in the mind, without addressing the negative directly, we can grow resources that are related to it. I'm going to talk about an overall framework or structure for doing that soon. But for example, let's suppose a person has uh, feelings of inadequacy, of being you know, like ugly or yucky or bad, And what would be a natural antidote for those or compensation for them or balance for them might be legit, authentic experiences of feeling included or wanted or or good in a deep moral sense, like inner goodness. A person can grow those resources alongside. It's like growing flowers alongside the weeds. We don't pull the weeds, but by growing those resources... It really helps us deal with the weeds and we start living more and more in the flowers. That's one major strategy, which is the safest of all because we're not directly tackling the pain, the sorrow, the loss, the trauma. That's legit. That's good. Okay. Second, and I'm going to try to move through this briskly, we grow resources that start to associate with the negative material and in effect gradually cover it over. It's like covering over the roots of weeds with lots of beautiful flowers and fruit. That's good. Notice we start to associate the positive to the negative again and again and again, and it gradually 
uh, deconditions the negative. It associates with the negative. Standard process, informally and formally. Formally, like in psychotherapy, we can do that. All right? There's a fundamental vulnerability, though, in that standard process of repeatedly associating uh, neutral or especially positive to the negative material because the negative material lives on deep down in the bowels of the brain, deep down buried in neural networks, and it can come back with a vengeance quickly and easily. All right? it's, it's important. It's a useful method, but there's a vulnerability in it. The third major strategy is one that's really cutting-edge neuropsychology. It's really being developed. This strategy uses what's called the window of reconsolidation to disrupt the reconsolidation of the negative in memory systems. I'm going to name this kind of quickly. I don't want to spend the whole day on this one. I'm just going to name it. It's full of opportunity. It's interesting exploration. The basic idea is this. The so-called negative material, which is not bad, we're not hating it, we're not aversive toward it. On the other hand, it burdens us or those we care about or are trying to help. It, it haunts our days. It casts a long shadow still. We want to do something about it. All right? Most of the time, it's just latent. It's just kind of there, floating around, but then it gets triggered. Something happens. Right? It gets reactivated. Essentially, what happens is that its seeds stored in memory are used to bring the experience up into consciousness, often in the background. We just sort of feel sad or irritable or sleepy or muzzled or small or we swerve. We get ready to express ourselves fully to someone we love or to an authority figure and then... We swerve away from it. Huh. Why'd that happen? Right. That negative material is active. Overtly or covertly. But then, we move on to the next thing. Let's say. The negative material goes, in effect, back down the memory hole, and it has to be rewired into us. It gets literally reconsolidated through physical processes of re-establishing that negative into neural networks. That's reconsolidation. A lot of material on this. Check it out. Google it. Other people. Uh, a, a therapist and scholar that I think has done tremendous work in this area is Bruce Ecker, E-C-K-E-R. Uh, is a whole thing on so-called coherence therapy. Ecker, a lot of good papers, very clear. Reconsolidation. So the negative stuff goes down. For a period of about an hour, no more than six hours, that material, that the negative, is um, malleable. It's not yet consolidated. And, in various ways, with drugs for rats that are toxic for humans, alas, but they're working on it, we can disrupt Literally, the reconsolidation of that negative material. And if we can disrupt it, we can erase it. We're not just covering it over. We're not just usefully, productively associating positive to the negative to balance it and compensate for it. We actually are erasing it. 
We're erasing the trauma. Wow. How to do that? Basically, if you're doing it on your own, which, of course, most of us will, the negative is active. Very often, the negative is associated with something that's essentially neutral. Like uh, being on an airplane is a neutral stimulus. We think it's scary because we associate fear to it, but it's neutral. Being with other people, being with an authority figure, speaking from the heart, it's essentially neutral. Uh, Being seen by other people, it's neutral, but we associate negative to it, and then we think it's negative. So the negative material emerges one way or another, then we move on from it for the next hour, a handful of times. Deliberately be aware of the neutral that the negative is chained to because we want to break the chain. The neutral could be our body. The neutral could be pleasure in the body. But there's an association to it that's problematic. Be aware of the neutral stimulus that's associated with the negative while at the same time feeling fine. No negative at all. Just aware of the neutral stimulus, just aware of it, maybe even with something that's an antidote to the negative, but not even thinking about the negative, just hanging out with feeling loved and feeling loved while expressing yourself fully with other people, while being more exposed, neutral stimulus again, just it's all fine during that hour of reconsolidation. And that will, over time, disrupt the reconsolidation so the weed cannot reroot itself. That was a complicated explanation. Hopefully it made sense. All right, I see some hands going up. All right, we're going to do this part, and then we're going to keep on going. All right, I saw it over here. Great, okay. And it, may, and it doesn't have to be related to the last thing. I think of it as like a title for a new Jason Bourne movie, The Erasure Protocol. That's the last thing. Okay, right there for you. All right, great. And I'll tend to move through multiple people briskly. Great. So when you were talking about um, dopamine and norepinephrine acting as flags for experiences to, to keep those experiences, um, are those two chemicals or are there other chemicals in the brain that do something similar for negative experiences to keep it as a, a long-term memory? For instance, um, like it, it's as, as a way of teaching you, it's, it's kept as a memory as a way of teaching you something so that you may not do it again. Like um, a child touches a hot stove, they get pain, they experience pain, they're like, oh, I shouldn't do that again, sort of a thing. Is there's something, is that dopamine and norepinephrine, or is there a sort of a similar... Okay, so as you, you probably heard that, as context, neuroscience is a baby science, so I'm kind of hanging out on the more front edge of what's known plausibly for what, how we can use it, but there's going to be so much more that we're learning. That said, um, dopamine spikes or can, there's like increased dopamine activity when our expectations are violated. Like we're hoping for something good and we're disappointed. We remember those. Also, we can be alerted through norepinephrine to things that are threatening or or problematic. Like, whoa, that really hurt. Pay attention. So those two can go to work. Additionally, over time, the stress hormone 
cortisol or related glucocorticoids, other molecules in that family, go up into the brain when we're irritated or cranky or lonely or frazzled or pressured, as well as when we're traumatized. Cortisol goes up into the brain and it has an impact in terms of negative learning, so-called, over time by sensitizing the amygdala. The alarm bell of the brain, which is also tracking opportunity, but it's at the amygdala, is especially oriented around threat because that's the most primal, that speaks the most primal need of all for safety. Live to see the sunrise. Eat lunch today in the Serengeti Plains. Don't be lunch today. <laughs> right? So that's, that's a way in which that happens. And there are other things as well, I'm sure, that do sensitize us. Um, I would say if, if you kind of look up the term negativity bias, I've written a fair amount about that, and there's a lot of good science about that. And in the back of the slide set, remember, sign up if you want my slides, in the back of the slide set are like six slides of references, including two that are about the negativity bias, one of which has the memorable title, Bad is Stronger Than Good. It's not better than good, but it can often be stronger than good. Uh, there's a quantity effect for positive experiences in most people's lives. They tend to be frequent, not always, obviously, but for many people, there are many little positive experiences. The negative ones are more infrequent, but they have more impact. So quantity effect for positive experiences, quality effect for negative experiences. So the takeaway for me from that, practical takeaway, is... When you're having negative experiences, uh, don't indulge them. Don't feed them. Don't marinate them in them. Don't ruminate about them. You know, I think Sokni Rinpoche had a saying, think the same, I'll paraphrase slightly, think the same crazy thought again and again. That's okay, but 10 is enough. You know? (laughs) Right? So... Recognize the, the pain, the negative material, the anxiety, the irritation, the resentment, the self-criticism. self-criticism. Recognize it. Whew, move into mindful awareness. So then we're no longer reinforcing it. And we're starting to associate spacious untroubledness with it. Get the learning from it as much as possible. And then move on as soon as possible. Don't let it marinate in the brain. And um, also really look for opportunities to grow the good again and again and again. That's for me the takeaway. To, to really recognize the d- degree to which, through evolution, we and our ancestors are really designed to learn massively from negative experiences if we survive them. To never forget. Yeah. Okay. So in that way, basically, negative experiences can sometimes have po- positive outcomes in the sense that it teaches you yeah. to survive certain things. Absolutely true. I think there's certain kinds of learning that only come through negative experience. I've had a lot of, um, there's a saying in, I think, medicine, good judgment comes from experience, and experience comes from bad judgment. <laughs> you know, I've had a lot of experience in life, including in the wilderness, and uh, rock climbing and otherwise. It is true, you know. On the other hand, I think negative experiences are overrated. Most pain has no gain. Tell the truth. You want more pain? If it's so useful, I'll give you some of mine. No. You know what I mean? So it's really important to appreciate that, yes, we do learn from pain and suffering. Um, That which doesn't kill us usually makes us weaker, contra Nietzsche, because it makes us more vulnerable and frail and brittle, you know, usually. And even if we did learn from the pain, we can ask ourselves, could I have learned this lesson? Could I have acquired this inner strength? 
through experiencing it directly and without the pain. Also, if we learn from pain, there must be something else present besides pain. We have to bring meaning to it. We have to bring perspective to it, self-compassion, bringing the wisdom of others. So pain, I think, there's this weird myth that pain is the great teacher. Mostly pain is just pain. It's usually pleasure, that which is enjoyable in a wholesome way, that that marks most of the experiences that are valuable for us. That's really interesting. The enjoyability of an experience is very often a marker of its value because our ancestors evolved those systems to track uh, beneficial experiences. Not all beneficial experiences are helpful. The Buddha talked about anger with its honeyed tip and poisoned barb. You know, uh, But generally speaking, uh, if it's an enjoyable experience, it's probably not just feels good, but it's good for us. There's a lot about that that's important. Okay, great. A couple more people, then I better move on right there. Great. And I'm happy to talk with you at breaks and stuff like that. Yeah. So. Sit on? Yeah, I think if you hold it close, it'll work. Hello? Yeah. <laughs> so I rediscovered the, the vagal nerve yeah. and the polyvagal uh-huh. theory, which yep. is having now three stages, the freeze stage included. So there's the, uh-huh. the green, the yellow, the red, right? Okay. The, the yeah. green is the relaxed state where we can eat and socialize with people. The yellow is where we fight and flight. Like it's either I'm eaten or um, uh-huh. I have to run away. Yeah. And then the third, the red is the, the frozen. Okay. Yeah. So I'm sitting, so this is what I've been reading. Yeah. So I feel You're this summarizing is here. other people. The really useful thing about the vagus nerve complex and what Steve Porges has developed as polyvagal theory. That's great. Yes, thank you. Yeah. And so there's this overlap here, definitely. And then I'm wondering about the frozen state and mm-hmm. also when people, um, you were talking about the creation of, of, of positive experience. Mm-hmm. And for some people that may be hard, like if we're frozen, sure. aspects of us are frozen, then yeah. could you elaborate? And Sure. So I'll speak more about this, just to kind of reset it. Um, To preview a key point, our needs are challenged continually. Right? It's easy to function when you're lying there in a hammock, sipping an umbrella drink while getting a mani-pedi, and people are singing your praises. That's easy. But how do we maintain resilient well-being um, when we're challenged in life, right? So just because there's a need, though, to, for safety or satisfaction or connection does not necessarily mean that we need to tip into craving and fight, flight, or freeze. So the key question then becomes, how do we help ourselves deal with challenges without being hijacked by these very powerful useful in the short run, harmful in the long run, ancient survival mechanisms. That's right. So I'm going to talk more about that. I'll just say for the moment here that when someone, for all kinds of reasons, is feels numb or frozen or immobilized or helpless, these are various versions of that inside. If you look at animals in the wild, the most Ancient and therefore powerful and primal means of coping is through freezing under threat. 
Like literally, if there's a frog in a pond, uh, if you put a fly immobilized in front of the frog, the frog won't see it. It's only when the fly moves that the frog sees it and gets it. So freezing, you know, is a really ancient strategy. So if somebody feels kind of frozen, or for various reasons they don't have access to certain kinds of experiences, right? then what do we do? I find what is so helpful is to start with what's simple and basic and kind of primal that's available. Like the natural way the heart slows as we exhale and the body relaxes. Undeniable. The simple pleasure in touching your lips or eating a raisin. Pleasure. Or warming up when you're cold. Or taking off a sweater if you're too hot. That's undeniable. Animals often. Cat, your cat. I did a fair amount of catitation with our cat sitting in my lap. My good buddy. Not with us any longer. Um, So I think that's where you start. Simple, undeniable, beneficial, and then you build out from there. And what? And when you work with yourself and with other people, often there are impediments to even starting there. A person needs to mobilize the sense of being on their own side or that they too deserve to become happier or really bad that those people did it to me back then. Not good to keep doing it to myself today. You know, you and that's a that's a resource. That's an inner strength to grow. So we, but the point is, we're never defeated. We have to do it ourselves, sometimes with the help of others. But we can always experience something wholesome and beneficial if if it's only this field of awareness that's always present, right? And then we build from there, and then over time, people become more agentic, they have more sense of efficacy, more like a hammer and less like a nail. But we start small and build from there. So I would say that in general. Okay, great. And then I'll say more that's relevant to your question. Okay, last person over here. Because the mic runners, then I mean, you're going to be the really last person. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if this question will be totally clear because what I'm looking for is clarity. But does your... You know, some of the paradigms say that so much of our energy is in that dark side, is in that anger. How do you take that energy, that incredible energy that we have there, and integrate it into something creative or the passion that we love? Where does that fit in your paradigm? I understand, like in Jung, you have to acknowledge it, etc. But how does that fit in your paradigm? And what do you do with that energy to say to have a positive experience with that same kind of energy. Yeah. Cry or you know the the energy there. Yeah. That's really great. I think in many ways what you're saying right there which seems very clear is at the heart of what I hope to explore today. In other words um, how do we deal with a real life in which naturally fear arises when there are challenges to safety or anger or uh, frustration or disappointment or loss arise when we're facing challenges to satisfaction, broadly defined. Or also if um, hurt comes up 
or a sense of outrage in our relationships, naturally. How do we use those adaptive, evolved emotions? How do we use them rather than letting them use us? That's, to me, the key distinction. And the Buddha had this line that I've thought about many times. Technically, we should always say, it is said that the Buddha said, because we weren't there when he said it, and things were passed down orally for several centuries before our written record survived, finally. That said, it is said that the Buddha said that in his own run-up to enlightenment, as he was getting kind of close, moving into it, he said essentially, all this stuff arose in my mind, but you know, I was aware of all these feelings, painful, racking feelings arose, but they did not invade my mind and remain. That's the key distinction. Does it, do we use it or does it use us? Really. So, the question is, of course, how? Right? And first point, my view, is that it's particularly important if you're a person who's part of any kind of a group who's understandable anger or hurt or frustration has been dismissed or downplayed. Then it's especially important to be, to be, to, to be careful about not doing that. And I, so I particularly want to not do that. I want to not, for example, tell women that they shouldn't be angry. Like good reasons for that, you know. My first book was about mothers, uh, so and things like that. Not to, this is tricky territory, uh, but I just want to say. So I, I'm not trying to say that these feelings of fear or outrage or injustice or anger are bad or problematic and so forth. And I think that there are ways sometimes that um, spiritual practice, particularly as it's been handed down a lot to us by people in monastic environments who temperamentally also maybe are more drawn to a very quiet kind of life can make tranquility the be-all and end-all of everything. To me, it's how do we use our passions and our understandable anger and outrage or fear uh, as as, as useful uh, rather than using us. So I'm going to talk more about that pretty soon, but I want to frame it in the way that you're doing it in and also emphasize not trying to tell people they shouldn't feel the way they do. Okay. That said, I think that these intense feelings of fear or anger for safety, frustration, or drivenness for satisfaction or resentment, or grievance, shame, or vengeance. <laughs> They're really powerful, right? Think how much of our history and our, li- and our public life today is caught up in being hijacked by these. And to quote the great teacher, do not underestimate the power of the dark side of the force. <laughs> And have respect. And there's a lot of Buddhism that's about respect for the power of these passions. And um, he used, the Buddha used the language of recognize their 
gratification, why we like them when we're caught up in them, or we get preoccupied with them, the gratification. Also recognize the danger. The danger, the cost, the price for ourselves and others. Most of the mistakes I've made in this life with other people have begun with my anger. And the Buddha said, third, understand the escape. How to practice with them and how to move on. So I'm going to explore that more with you later. But this is the, but the key distinction I want to make is between two ways of managing challenges to needs. That's the thing. How do we go about managing our challenges to needs? Okay. You want to say more? I just... I don't know if just talk is, right into it. Talk right into... Oh, gosh, yes. Okay. I think what I'm, also, what I'm looking at a little bit is how you transform that into something positive. I'm not Van Gogh. I can't go paint and a picture from that energy. Mm-hmm. So how does a normal person take that energy, acknowledge it, and then transform it into something positive? It, you know, I don't have a particular artistic bent or musical bent or whatever. How does that happen? Yeah. That energy is there. How do you turn that into something that works for you rather than against you? That's good. I'll, I'll just say this and move on. Um, I, it's a great question, obviously. And I th- when I think about it, I think it really depends on which it is. So, for example, how do we start with fear? Maybe something makes us anxious. <clears throat> how do we use that as a signal? And then on the basis of that anxiety, try to uh, see the size of the actual threat. Right? And use that anxiety to alert us to danger and to highlight the need to get resources. That's anxiety. Anger is a little different. If we're angry, what's the anger about? Is it because we feel threatened or frustrated or affronted? Those are three different kinds of needs. Safety, satisfaction, or connection. What's the basis for the anger? And then we, for me at least, I find it really interesting to explore what is it like as a buddhist kind of guy who does appreciate the power of the dark side of the force, as it were. Um, how do we use fieriness, being fiery, without being invaded by hate and caught up in the poisoned barb of anger? Right? How do we do that. And to me, that depends on the particular thing. Uh, how do we use feelings of shame? Like, oh, how do we filter out healthy remorse from unhealthy shame? And then use that healthy remorse to guide ourselves to do better the next time. You know, to me, it, it kind of depends on what it really is. Uh, but the fundamental process, I think, is to not get identified with and swept away by these various emotions and over time grow resources inside that can deal with them and compensate for them and find other ways. Like, for example, I've done a ton of rock climbing where I'm standing on little edges, the width of a pencil, you know, or less, and the wind is howling and I'm, you know, a thousand feet off the ground and I'm having a time of my life because my safety is threatened. There's a lot of danger. There's real hazard, but I'm not freaked out by it. 
uh, I don't know if you've seen the film Free Solo, Alex Honnold, you know, where he's interviewed at one point, he, you know, he climbed El Capitan without a rope, and uh, he's asked, you know, do you ever feel stressed? He goes, if I feel stressed, something has gone terribly wrong. Right? He doesn't want to let that invade his mind and remain. So my point is, I'm interested in exploring how it's possible to cope with life and challenges on the basis of peace, contentment, and love rather than fear, frustration, and heartache, hurt, shame, resentment, grievance, and vengeance. That's the key question. So that's what we're going to explore. So enough speechifying from me. Let's move more into practice here, especially before lunch, okay? And it'll become more clear over time. And I'm happy to talk about it later. Now you over here, the last... Okay, that's good. Okay, great. Okay? You okay so far? All right, great. This is great. All right, so here's how to do it. Now you know how to do it. I'm going to show you some pretty pictures because we're going to move fast. The green balls. I'm now famous for the green balls, okay? Have a beneficial experience. It's okay to let yourself have them. Watch your mind not letting yourself have beneficial experiences or to stay with them. Really interesting. Or if you work with other people... Watch their blocks to doing that. It's really interesting. Then, moving into installation. Enrich and absorb. Enriching. There are five major factors of enriching. You know, this, write it down. Ready? Duration. The longer those neurons are firing, the more they're going to tend to wire together. Stay with it for a breath or longer. Great. Intensity. The more intensely they fire, the more they wire. So help the experience pervade the mind and kind of play around with how do I turn up the volume on gratitude? And it's kind of paradoxical, but we can be intensely tranquil if it just pervades the mind. Intensity. Third, I have a weird word, multimodality. Just means the more elements of an experience that are present, the more it's going to sink in, especially body sensations and action. I had the hand on the heart thing, part of multimodality. All right? Third factor of enriching. The, in effect, the, the more aspects of the experience, the better. Fourth, really interesting, novelty. The brain's a big novelty detector. Dopamine surges with novelty, the news. And as dopamine comes up, so does uh, experience-dependent neuroplasticity. So novelty, what's fresh? or new in our experience, or regarding experience like with the eyes of a child, or with a sense of surprise, delight, or playfulness. Playfulness is really good, and I'll say more about that in a moment. Fifth factor of enriching, personal relevance. I mentioned that as well. Why might it be relevant for you to become more grateful these days? Right? Personal relevance. What is salient about the experience? Focusing on that will help it sink in more. All right? Absorbing. Intend and sense that the experience is sinking in and focus on what's rewarding about it. Interestingly, one way to increase neuroplastic sensitivity in the brain is through playfulness. I just started thinking about all these therapy sessions I would have with my clients where like, we'd both be sort of droning on, oh yeah... <laughs> Your mother, your father. Yeah, tell me more. Wow. (laughs) 
No, <laughs> Dullsville. <laughs> no learning. But playfulness is interesting. There's research that shows on juvenile rats and others uh, that as we get more playful, there's more release of what are called neurotrophic factors in the brain. Trophic means grow. So these are factors that promote growth, physical growth, connections and repair of neurons and so forth inside the brain. So as we approach our beneficial experiences with a feeling of playfulness or an attitude of playfulness, we're going to steepen our our gains from them. Or if we help others be playful, as great teachers know, um, it's going to enhance learning, including through increasing these neurotrophic factors. Okay? All right, great. Then linking, red ball, green ball. Want the green ball like Pac-Man or something? You know, to eat the, the red ball. Not that the red ball's bad, but it's burdensome and costly. All right? The essence of all this, as I've said... Have it. Enjoy it. Many benefits for deliberately taking in the good. I think Lao Tzu summarized them a while ago. Keep a green bough in your heart and a singing bird will come. Okay, so far? All right, great. So I think what I want to do with you is a little practice. And then I'm going to talk about the second and third noble truths in Buddhism in particular craving and suffering. But let's do a little practice first. So what I'm going to do here is one of my personal favorite practices. So I'm going to set it up. I'm going to name the 10-minute challenge. You know how they have these challenges these days, the 10-day challenge? I have the 10-minute challenge. I don't think you can do it in 10 seconds. Here's the 10-minute challenge each day. First, a handful of times each day, slow down to take in the good. Finish the dishes, you get the kid to bed, you know, the Warriors win a game in the playoffs. Oh, they didn't last night. But anyway, um, you take in the good. Someone is friendly, you feel loving, you recognize your own worth. You feel, hey, deep down I'm, I'm a basically good person. Take it in. Slow down for a breath. Uh, if you really want to take in the good, of all the complicated methods I've said, Three, to me, stand out. Anyone is good. All three are better. Stay with it for a breath or longer. Feel it in your body. Focus on what feels good about it. What's rewarding? We can remember three things. Like, if I'm going to the store, my wife says ABC. I can remember that. But if she adds D, forget it. i got to write it down. Four things, one too many. But three, we can remember. Stay with it for a breath or longer. Feel it in the body. Focus on what's rewarding. Okay? So... First element of the 10-minute challenge, handful of times each day, slow down to take in the good. That's two, three minutes a day tops. Second, know one thing in particular you're trying to grow these days. What's that one key resource, that particular flower inside the garden of your mind? You know, well, What are you trying to grow in particular these days? And then that organizes your day because you start looking for opportunities to feel it and internalize it. That's the second element of the 10-day challenge. And the third element is, for a minute or more every day, hopefully longer, one to five minutes a day, marinate in deep green. What I mean by that is the green zone of the third noble truth of Buddhism where there's a felt sense of needs fulfilled enough and craving starts falling away. And that's the practice we're going to do in a moment. The green zone, I call it, 
of feeling safe enough, satisfied enough, and connected enough in the moment. Be nice to have more, but there's an enoughness. And with that sense of enoughness, in the mind, broadly, there's a sense of peace, contentment, and love. That's the marinating in deep green. That's so important because while most of us are not having to run from the equivalent of saber-toothed tigers every day, we're constantly stressed, most of us are, mildly or moderately in everyday life. Running around, bombarded with stimuli, multitasking, switching gears all the time, pressured, pushed, driven, preoccupied. Um, We're in the pink zone, if not the full red, many, many minutes a day. So we really, really need to help the core of ourselves come home to our resting state of enoughness of safety, satisfaction, connection, peace, contentment, love. That's the 10-minute challenge. It takes less than 10 minutes a day. If you do it one day, it'll change your day. 10 days in a row, it'll change your life. I guarantee it. I know, it's an ad. Okay, so you want to try it? Ready? We're going to do peace, contentment, love. Right? This will be a meditation. All right. And like anything I suggest, feel free to adapt my suggestions. I do this myself often before I get out of bed in the morning. Often it's the central part of my meditation to just center in this place, essentially of calm strength, um, contentment, ah, and lovingness. It's great. Here we go. I I tend to start from the bottom up because it's most primal. Inner lizard, mouse and monkey, right? Safety, satisfaction, connection. So we're going to start with peace, then contentment, then love. You can do it in any order you like. So to begin with, take a few breaths and focus on long exhalations to calm the body. And help yourself gently become calmer. It might help to be aware of the sense of recognizing protections. (coughs) This is a quite a safe room in a safe setting and be aware of what it's like to let go of unnecessary tension in your body or anxiety or bracing. We can develop a habit of anxiety, of uneasiness. It's very interesting to see what it's like to feel calm and aware and strong without any anxiety at all. Being mindful of any uneasiness or apprehensiveness here and now, letting it go.
you're not forcing anything away. It's more like you're letting go of it or stepping out of it and resting increasingly in a feeling of calm, strong, peacefulness. that you can be aware of threats, you can be aware of pain without being upset about it. You can protect yourself, you can protect others while feeling at peace in the core of your being. Allowing your body and mind to become increasingly tranquil. Letting peacefulness be your object of meditation in effect.
And then letting the sense of peacefulness move more to the background of the mind. And we'll be focusing now more on contentment. So it can help to bring to mind things you feel grateful for. Or people in places that bring a smile. You'd be aware of the feeling of accomplishing goals and aware of so many goals accomplished already in this life. So many steps already taken. So you can let the feeling of success from those accomplishments to be present in awareness, helping you feel more contented. Knowing that it's okay to want more, to be ambitious, to aspire. But it's possible to do that without drivenness or discontent. Helping yourself feel increasingly contented as you are now And now, with any feelings of disappointment or frustration or discontent falling away. If your mind wanders, bringing it back, taking contentment as your meditation. A feeling of enoughness already, continuously.
And then letting contentment move to the background of awareness. Focusing increasingly on love. And again, we're not chasing anything. It's more like we're opening to or gently encouraging some beneficial experience. So bringing to mind beings you care about. Pat, friend, child. Perhaps beings you feel compassionate for warm-hearted. Perhaps beings who've cared about you, benefactors, friends, family. Not getting into a story about any of these relationships, just using the recollectedness, the remembrance of these things as a way to help yourself feel Maybe with a hand on your heart, if you like. Feel warm-hearted. Meditating on warm-heartedness. Lovingness. Loved and loving. Love flowing in, love flowing out. It's very natural for other things to arise like not feeling cared about or lonely or hurt. It's okay. And as best you can, keep coming back to compassion, kindness, and love. Resting increasingly here. And allowing a falling away of resentment, Grievances, knowing that you can assert yourself, knowing that you're not waiving your rights, while also resting in love. Perhaps feelings of inadequacy or low worth also falling away. Resting in a lovingness can include a knowing of your own innate goodness. in the fullness of love, clinging to others, falling away, 
struggles with others falling away. And then in the last couple minutes here, exploring what could be like a, a, a integrated or general sense of peace and contentment and love weaving together so that there's less basis for any kind of aversion or grasping or clinging, falling away the sense of coming home to your own fundamental nature, already full, already at ease, peaceful, contented, loved and loving.
Thanks for doing that. Um, I think what I'd like to do, well, first, would, would anybody like to share about that? Like, did that, how was that for you? No? Anybody? Great, right here, just a couple, right here, in the first in the front. Great. Right, you? Right here you go, right there. If you leave your hand up, then they can see who you are. Yeah, great. First you? Great. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, thank you, first of all. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah, good. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I felt a, a, a shift Yeah. during it. I definitely felt a shift. I've done a fair amount of meditation, um, and sometimes I comes easy, sometimes it doesn't, you know, go in and out. But I definitely, I felt a shift of ease. That's very good. Come over me. And I could, I I do believe when you're in a a group that you get a lot more out of it. Um, So, thank you. Well, good. Well, thank you. And to be clear, there are different, there are many kinds of meditations. um, And... Very often, the simplest ones are the most powerful, where we simply be present and just let whatever's there roll through. And there are other meditations that are more cultivation meditations, like loving kindness or compassion and so forth. And this was more of a cultivation meditation, but it's not the only kind. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, and it's very interesting, as I'll talk about in a moment, to track more craving or less craving. In other words, and what supports less craving? what supports less resisting of what's unpleasant, safety, what supports less grasping after what's pleasant, satisfaction, and also what supports less clinging to what's relational for connection. It's really useful. Okay, and I'll get right into that in a moment. All right, one more person. Yeah, thank you. Thank Uh, you. That was very nice. Um, I do meditate, and I, I like, I tend to lean toward a simple yeah, simple med- This was lovely because it was short and sweet, and focus on right. letting go, but then bringing in, focusing on the love and the peacefulness and contentment, yeah. and it's it just in that short period of time, it it um, very positive. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's striking to me often how much can happen in ten minutes. You know. Um, all right, so what I'd like to do uh, is to move through some, some fundamental framework material about the second and the third noble truths in Buddhism, and you'll see what I'm getting at there, and then have lunch starting at 1 o'clock in about 15 minutes. Okay, so we're going to end the morning with velocity. All right, here we go. So, craving and suffering. Sometimes it's said that I think of Buddhism sometimes as like the bummer religion, you know? <laughs> Live, suffer, die, repeat, right? And, you know, but actually the Buddha was described as the happy one. And I, I read a description of him recently from a contemporary in it that has survived. And it was said that he, he said um, he was always smiling. The Buddha. Okay. How do we do that? So I want to tell the four ennobling truths in a certain kind of way. There is suffering. It's not all of life. It's not even all of our experience always. And still, there is a fair amount of suffering, clearly. Uh, 
Second, as craving increases, so does suffering. Craving is an old-fashioned word. Basically, it means um, you know fighting with what's unpleasant, chasing or getting possessive about what's pleasant, or clinging in relationships to other people and various aspects of that. As craving decreases, so does suffering. Ah, good news. And then there is a path, an eight-part path, that embodies and leads to the ending of suffering. So this is a way of saying the four ennobling truths. All right? Well, if craving causes suffering, what causes craving? I find as someone who's been involved in meditative practice for a long time, I encountered Buddhism and other Eastern traditions in 1974, that was a while ago. What a long, strange trip it's been, right? As the Grateful Dead put it. I found really interestingly, like there's what I call needlepoint Buddhism, where people just have these sayings, they just sort of put them up on a wall and then ignore them. Well, what causes craving? Why do we crave? Especially if we ground craving in life. It is animals who crave. It is bodies that crave. It is bodies that experience craving or that create experiences of craving. What are the causes of craving in the living animal body, such as one we have ourselves? Craving arises in relationship to needs. When our needs are met, we don't crave. When there's fullness and balance in reference to our needs, we don't crave. And let, there's maybe some auto-craving or habit-craving or delusion-based craving, but there's actually no biological basis for craving when needs are met. So, what do we need? This is a basic model that you find in many places. I've kind of pulled it together. It summarizes the needs of any animal, including us, in three parts. Needs for safety, satisfaction, and connection, which I've spoken to. Okay? What, the way that the animal meets those needs can really vary. The way that, let's say, a little worm meets its needs for connection through sex is very different than a bunch of high school kids getting ready for a dance or a party. But still, the need is fundamentally the same. Safety, satisfaction, connection. These needs are managed through avoiding harms, approaching rewards, and attaching to others broadly. These are broad motivational, regulatory, adaptive systems in the brain that, as I said, uh, function through avoiding, approaching, and attaching. There's this, I'm summarizing a lot of fundamental ideas in biology and psychology here. Okay? Good. The management of these needs, these three systems, avoiding, approaching, attaching, are loosely but significantly related to the three-stage evolution of the brain. It's the brain was built like a house from the bottom up over 600 million years of evolution, especially the last several hundred million years. We have the first floor of the house of the brain, the brainstem, so-called reptilian stage of evolution. On top of that, the second floor of the house of the brain, the subcortex with regions like the amygdala, the hippocampus, hypothalamus, basal ganglia, the subcortex. And then on top of that, we have the neocortex that's associated with the primate and especially human stage of evolution. The brain has tripled in volume in the last two, three million years. And most of that is in the neocortex, most of which is related to our need for connection. This is the so-called social brain theory. 
that the benefits of getting good at relationships were a primary driver of the evolution of the brain in the last you know, two, three million years. Our ancestors began using tools to make tools about two and a half million years ago. Those are our hominid ancestors. Anatomically modern humans arose around 300,000 years ago. There's probably been additional evolution since then, but people who look like us were walking around what is now Somalia or Ethiopia uh, or Morocco, you know, 300,000 years ago. Now, just about evolution, how many of you have blue or green eyes? Admit it. You are mutants. You are. Nobody had blue eyes till about four or 5,000 years ago when, uh, when a mutant somewhere probably around modern Denmark was very popular. <laughs> I'm kind of old school, you know. Brown-eyed guy. All right? Evolution has continued, all right? But basically, down that long run, uh, there were beings a lot like us uh, making fire, million-plus years ago, complex social lives, uh, planning, cooperation, gossip, and politics, right? What a long, strange trip it's been. Okay, so, second noble truth and third noble truth. Second noble truth, needs don't feel sufficiently met. This is a neuropsychological description of the second ennobling truth of craving. When we don't feel safe enough, even if we're objectively safe, we don't feel safe, Uh, We feel disturbed by threat. The avoiding coping system goes reactive, the red zone, and there's a pervasive sense of fear. The term in traditional Buddhism for this is hatred. Hatred is kind of a traditional word. I prefer a broader word, fear. Mine is covered with a sense of fear or anger or helplessness. It goes back to your thing of freezing. Or when we feel dissatisfied. Our need for satisfaction is disturbed, maybe a sense of loss or blockage in goal pursuit, goal attainment. Uh, The approaching system goes into the red zone, the reactive mode, saturated with craving, and there's a sense of frustration. Uh, The Buddhist word for that was greed. I'm using frustration as a broader term. Drivenness, disappointment, um, attachment to outcomes, addiction, sits right here. Then, last, when we feel disconnected, disturbed by rejection, broadly defined, loneliness or feelings of inadequacy, worthlessness, or we get caught up in grievance. We've seen very much in our politics today, of course, the power of grievance and vengeance and how easily manipulated that is by authoritarian demagogues throughout history. Then here, too, the attaching system goes reactive with a sense of heartache. That's a broad word. Loneliness, resentment rage at others, and so forth. And also crippling shame and inadequacy. That's, that's your brain on craving. Okay? On the other hand, when needs do feel sufficiently met, the good news, it's really interesting to observe the ebb and flow of the movement from second noble truth, third noble truth. More craving, less craving. Red zone, green zone. Back and forth. It's possible, much of the time, to feel that there's an enoughness of needs met already. Then subtleties of craving start manifesting, which get very interesting to observe with growing mindfulness. But in terms of gross forms, the gross engines or fuels of craving, that can really diminish over time. So when we feel safe enough, 
even if we're rock climbing, but deep down you feel like you know what you're doing, the uh, avoiding system goes responsive. I distinguish between the reactive mode, second noble truth, responsive mode, more of a sense of managing needs, not on the basis of deficit and disturbance, but on the basis of fullness and balance. That's the green zone. So the, the mind is colored in that mode with a sense of peace in the management of threats to safety. Just because there's a threat to safety doesn't mean that we need to get angry or frightened or immobilized by it. Just because there's a need or that for satisfaction is challenged, we can still keep going. We can still be strong, but without being invaded by disappointment, frustration, or addiction, or drivenness. Right? So when we feel satisfied enough, approaching system goes responsive, sense of contentment, and you can see up there what happens with connection as well. This is a fundamental framework. There's no way, whether you're the Buddha or not, to get away from the three basic needs of any animal. We all need to be safe, satisfied, and connected. We all want to help those we care about to be the same. We don't have a choice about the reptilian brainstem, you know, mammalian subcortex, the primate human neocortex, the inner lizard, mouse, and monkey in us all. We don't have a choice about that. We don't have a choice about these two broadly distinguished ways, right? Red zone, green zone of meeting our needs. Our only choice is which system we're in as we manage our needs, more or less craving. People habitually experience an underlying sense of deficit and disturbance, something missing, something wrong, even in the most affluent countries of the world. I grew up, like I said, in L.A., and there was a lot of unhappiness in Beverly Hills. A lot of people, perfectly uh, protected and gated communities who are endlessly freaked out about invaders of one kind or another. You know, people who have tons and tons and tons and will ruin the world to rack up another million dollars. You know, people who uh, themselves are really, really not being mistreated and in their minds that are very preoccupied with grievances and fantasies of vengeance and policies of vengeance. We're very vulnerable to deficit and disturbance. On the other hand, two things. One, when we grow resources to meet our needs... We can stay in the green zone when our needs are challenged. Right? As we develop calm strength and grit and um, a sense of personal potency, we can stay in the green zone even when we're being threatened. As we grow resources for pursuing our goals, uh, uh, for uh, being able to stay on task, keep on going, to protect and preserve big dreams, We can stay in the green zone even when there are challenges to our career or our work or our success. And the same in relationships. Uh, We can manage issues with others while staying in a sense of love inside ourselves. Uh, I think of this teaching from the Buddha that one is not really wise who can simply recite the sacred scriptures. One is truly wise who is peaceable, friendly, and fearless like that. Peaceable, friendly, 
and fearless even when we're challenged. So when we come back from lunch, I'm going to go through each one of these need areas, safety, satisfaction, and connection, and experientially in practices with you. We're going to focus more on experiential practice and less on my blather after lunch. In each one of these areas, how do we actually grow resources for safety, satisfaction, and connection? And in particular, how do we repeatedly internalize the sense of an enoughness of needs met already? So that increasingly, the next moment lands while we feel already safe enough, satisfied, and connected enough, enough, with an underlying feeling of peace, contentment, and love. That's what we're going to explore after lunch. Okay, see this structure? This gives us a roadmap, and you might ask yourself, in this structure I'm laying out here, like here, safety, satisfaction, and connection, where are your main needs these days? And what would be key resources for you? And how, as you move through your day, when it's authentically available to you, could you help everyday ordinary experiences under the general heading of peace, contentment, and love to really sink in. So the more and more you enter the next moment feeling already full and balanced rather than having a sense of something missing, something wrong. Okay? That's what we're going to explore after lunch. All right? Take in the good during lunch. Come on back at 2 o'clock. 2 o'clock for those on live stream. See you then.
Okay, bonus for those people who came back right on time. I'm still breathing hard from running in. Questions or comments from the special people who came back right on time? Any questions or comments? Covered a lot of ground here. We went through the second and third noble truths at warp speed. Right? Right? No one has any questions about suffering or craving? What? Okay, you and then you. Okay, I'm Mike, I'm Mike, I'm Mike Ben. So the wisest person I know who is David Steindl-Rast, a second, you're the wisest, second wisest person I know, David Steindl-Rast, said if you peel away any human problem, at the bottom is always fear. And he wasn't the kind of person that made categorical statements like that. So I'm interested in your comment. It's okay to say I don't Okay, don't so at the bottom, brother uh, Steindl-Rast, right, who... I think is wiser than I am. Wonderful person. And if you have a chance to watch this uh, TED Talk on gratitude, in which he's narrating part of it as a movie, it's just lovely. His name is Brother uh, something Steindl Rost. S-T-E-I-N-D-L hyphen R-A-S-T. He's a deep teacher of gratitude. And there's a beautiful TED Talk with a little movie in it that's, that's him speaking about it. It's really, really touching. So you were saying, right, Richard, that uh, at the heart of, he says that at the bottom of all issues um, is fear. Fear. I, I can see that in some ways, you know, like greed, the bottom of that is fear of not getting, right? Uh, jealousy or inadequacy, fear of not being loved. I can get that. Um, so I want to just kind of leave that almost as a reflection for us all. And, and two things on that. <clears throat> First, when I was in training to become a therapist, my supervisor said something I've thought about many times. He, he said essentially, Rick, much as they say in criminal investigations, follow the money. In the healing professions, especially psychotherapeutic professions, follow anxiety. Follow anxiety. Pay attention to anxiety. And that's actually been a very deeply useful practice for me to really pay attention to subtle uneasiness or apprehensiveness, as well as certainly global, even intense feelings of panic or, or complete freezing. <clears throat> Follow anxiety. And watching the thread of that in your own mind, I think that's really useful. Second, related to that, I think of a saying that I heard from Tara Brock, who probably heard it from somewhere else. The saying is, all sickness is at bottom homesickness. It's a deep way, right? Homesickness. How do we understand that? Including not being in our true home, which for me is our resting state. I didn't say this before lunch, but um, craving, or the red zone, is a state of disturbance. We're disturbed from feeling needs met enough. When needs feel met enough, there's enough to eat. We're not being attacked by a predator in the moment. We can kind of rub up against others of our tribe. Whether you're a lizard, a mouse, a monkey, or a zebra... We calm down, we relax. It's humans who can spin out into the past and the future, who live a lot in 
uh, ongoing feeling of something missing, something wrong, even when actually objectively in the moment there's plenty and you're balanced already. But we don't feel at home. So there's like an inner homelessness that that can become chronic for people. That's why I think it's so important, as I said in the 10-minute challenge, to come home to the green zone at least for a few minutes a day in a very felt bodily way. Really important. And um, then more and more we don't have that sickness which at bottom is homesickness because we're already home wherever we go. I think that. So, yeah. Okay. And in the back there? Oh, thanks, Richard. In the back there. Um, Rick, I know you're sort of addressing this indirectly, but I, and I just had a, had the thought which occurs to me, and I see it come up in spiritual and psychological writings. Um, I'd like to be able to see the world as a friendly place more consistently. And objectively, I know it is, and it isn't. It's pretty complicated objectively, but I know it's more of a subjective feeling. And any thoughts you may have on that? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I want to speak to the. I think that's a deep question, right? And going back to this, the primacy of fear, as Brother Steindl Ross speaks of, for me it's actually, in addition to being true, it's kind of humble and heart-touching to appreciate what scared little creatures we are. And I think of Mary Oliver, the poet's line, the soft animal of the body. And how important it is, including in very simple ways, especially when there's a freezing, to soothe it, to comfort it, to touch it. And to really appreciate the centrality, and in terms of the evolution of the brain, the foundational primacy of very undeniable physically soothing, comforting, refueling experiences like taking a full breath or shifting out of something that's contracted or painful just in our posture, you know, or healthy pleasure of some kind, you know, beauty, delight, um, taste, touch, really, 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 really central. So I think... That, for me, is, is really important. And it respects the fact that, as a friend of mine, my co-author on my book, Buddhist Brain, the neurologist Rick Mendias, points out, our ancestors were prey animals long before they were predators. And it's poignant to appreciate that, I think most animals in the wild die in the, act of, in the moment of being attacked and eaten by a predator. Like there's something in us that's very vulnerable to feeling afraid. And you can see how easy that is to manipulate in relationships, groups, communities, and nations. Fear. So, part one. Part two, I had a friend who was a monk in uh, <coughs> Asia uh, for six months. So he took up robes, took up vows, and meditated in a little hut there. I think it was in maybe Thailand or Burma. And um, this story is is in Buddha's brain. And my friend's practice was not going well. And after a month or so, he was just kind of reflecting on it. 
And coincidentally, seemingly, uh, there was like a little pit toilet in his very primitive hut in the countryside. And because and he would clean it with pouring water on the surface of it. And the water would attract various ants and other bugs. And so when he would clean it, uh, the water would wash them away. And he, he had also taken up a vow to take no life. First precept. Do not uh, kill a living creature. And so he... he was talking with a senior monk there about what was going on in his practice and he just mentioned in passing, by the way, is it okay to just sort of flush a few dozen ants away every time, in effect, with the water? And the monk stared at him and said essentially, that's not your vow, is it? And my friend was really startled and he began being very careful about the little creatures. Uh you know, in terms of his washing behaviors. And he noticed that his own meditative practice really took off at that point. And I asked him about it, and he's, he's a kind of a down-to-earth practical person, not a airy-fairy, you know, lifted-off-the-ground person. And he said, you know, honestly, I think it was because, in a funny kind of way, as I ceased being threatening to others, I felt less threatened by them. And I was more able to settle and calm. So I think one way to help ourselves experience the world as less threatening, while seeing what is threatening, actually, but to feel less threatened unnecessarily by it, or maybe we see the challenge but we're less anxious by it, is to be is to treat the word the world with more gentleness and kindness ourselves, to be less of a threat to it in ways large and small. It's really an interesting exploration, isn't it? And then <clears throat> another thing about the world, uh, I say this as a longtime therapist and also someone who's you know raised two kids with my wife and, and also is um, pretty educated about history and current politics. I think it's very important to be clear-eyed about hazards and threats and the motivations of others who, who come at us and to really look carefully and see whether... Others are committed to me to the two fundamental principles of living together, a commitment to truth and to justice, or summarized as tell the truth and play fair. What the kindergarten teacher tells, what we tell our kids, tell the truth and play fair. And so you can see over time, is this other person actually committed to telling the truth and playing fair? We could be adversaries, we can be competitors, but are you fundamentally committed to telling the truth and playing fair. I'm okay with a little bit of shading here and a little edging there, but fundamentally, if it's, so, if it's bad if I do it, it's got to be bad when you do it. If it's okay for you to do it, it's okay for me to do it. You know, Sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander, something like that. And so that's the fundamental thing, and so I think it's useful to be wide, open-eyed about what the other person's or group's um, stand is around these two fundamental principles and if those principles telling the truth and playing fair are um, are not solid, that's what needs to be talked about. That pops to the top of the stack is the most important to see and then figure out what you're going to do. Complicated stuff. But I think that, that would be that. All that said, finishing, in the wild, <clears throat> as it were, our ancestors could make two kinds of mistakes. One kind was to think that 
uh, there was a tiger in the bushes about to pounce, but in fact there was really no tiger at all. The other kind of mistake was thinking that everything's fine, feeling groovy, and something's about to get you. Well, what's the cost of the first mistake? Needless anxiety. What's the cost of the second mistake? (laughs) No more mistakes forever, right? So we're designed to tilt toward making the first mistake thousands of times to avoid making the second mistake even once. That's another example of the negativity bias. So we have, therefore, what I call paper tiger paranoia. We normally are biased toward overestimating threats. The world is threatening. And underestimating opportunities and underestimating resources for threats and opportunities. There are some people who make the mistake the other way. They underestimate threats, you know, especially diffuse slow motion threats like global climate change, dumping essentially through human activity 100 million tons a day of CO2 into the sky, half of which at least stays up there, day after day after day, quarter of which goes in the oceans, another quarter essentially recovered by plants, but 100 million tons a day of CO2 eventually makes a difference. That's a threat that's easy to underestimate over time. But on the whole, if you just think about most people in daily life, we we tend to be more nervous than we need to be. Um, And so to me what's useful is to put in a correction factor. I remember walking through airports uh, with all these signs, blap, 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 threat level orange. I used to be, a, I worked for a mathematician for a year as a risk analyst doing probabilistic risk analyses. Sounds fancy. I was the 27-year-old in the basement grinding the numbers while my boss, the mathematician, was figuring out the, the highfalutin equations. But the essence of it, you know, uh, told me that the risk of a bad event on my airplane that day was threat level green. Or maybe chartreuse, like a swimming pool of green paint with a spoonful of yellow, you know? That was the threat. And I would just make my body again and again, moving through the airport, get activated, threat level orange, and then calm down. And I I think also about other people who want to manipulate us with fear. And it's like, no, I see you. It may not be safe for me to say anything, but I see you. I may not... Be safe enough to reveal in my face that I see you. But in the sacred inner temple of my mind, I see you clearly. And I know it's coming. And I, in my heart of hearts, I'm not cowed or bowed. I mean, to me, that's a very important thing to claim. And as social mammals, we're very, very vulnerable to intimidation, to threat, or the fear of that. Or having outliers in our band picked off, and then that threat, even a terrorist of kind of threat held over us to scare us forever. And I think it's very important to, uh, to stand against that and um, to not let uh, ourselves be frightened so much, while at the same time being having 20-20 vision, even if you need contact lenses like I have, being really clear-eyed about actual threats and hazards and being real about them. And then it's a process of growing resources to do that, which is a great segue, now that you're all here, into what we're going to do for the rest of today, which is to grow strengths in these three columns. Okay? But before we go any further, I want to correct a mistake of my own, which was, before lunch, I should have told you something. So I'm going to tell you now, and I'm going to try to remember to tell you again just before the break, so you have a chance to do something about it. 
here's what it is. Um, we're at Spirit Rock Meditation Center, just under a square mile of land uh, that was acquired and has operated. I was on the board here for nine years a while ago uh, and operates today largely through donations of one kind or another. A lot of those donations are intangible, like the volunteers today who are offering their time and attention. Also, the intangible dana or generosity, dana is a poly word, of good-heartedness and kindness and supportiveness from you, your attentiveness today. Additionally, money helps the light stay on. So they have a program here that I'm part of. They call it the Stewardship Circle, in which people agree to be a, a monthly donor, like at the scale of $25 a month, which is less than a dollar a day. Right. So they have a special thing this month. They call it Meta in May. Meta being loving kindness. The root of that word is actually friendliness. It's like friendliness in May, but Meta in May. It's got more alliteration there. And um, if you sign up to become a steward, like I am, uh, at whatever level you're comfortable with, um, that will really, really help Spirit Rock out. It's one of the leading institutions of its kind, literally in the world. It's been a major innovator in a number of areas, still working at it, but a major innovator with family programs and supporting diversity, as well as other kinds of things, um, like you know the intersection of Buddhism and psychotherapy or brain science. And so if you want to join me in helping Spirit Rock out in a regular way, I'd really be grateful to you if you would think about doing that. And they have little sign-up sheets out there on the tables. On the break, no need to rush out of the room. I know you want to, but better stay in here. At the break, if you want to, you know, just do that. It feels really good. And if you sign up in May, in addition to the benefits you get, which is free access to a lot of cool programs and, and things, you can give a friend of yours um, that same thing for three months for free. Right? That's like a teaser. Sort of a gateway drug. I mean, no, I didn't mean that. But you know what I mean. Okay, you got the basic idea? So I just hope you'll join me. You know, and as the Buddha taught, you know, think of it as practice and as something that makes your heart sing. Okay? Good. Good. All right. Let's keep going. All right, so now I want to talk about, you see these idea up here, matching resources to needs. Any questions about this part? What would really help? if it were more present in your mind or a client of yours. This is not a complete list. I had to fit it on a slide, but pretty basic. Seems clear, right? Okay, so let's start doing it. So, one way, in a goofy way, I think, of these three columns having to do loosely with our reptilian brainstem mammalian subcortex, primate human neocortex, is that it's really useful whenever you can over the course of your day in big ways and mostly small ways to repeatedly pet the lizard, safety. I grew up in, with lizards. I love lizards. They're amazing. You stroke their little bellies. You meet their needs for connection. They're like, oh, happy. I love, I love, I love Ricky. Oh, happy. The lizard. Then... That's a live, I think it's a gecko or I have no idea, whatever it is. And then we have, of course, feed the mouse. Experiences of wholesome pleasure, goal attainment, gratitude, beauty, even awe. Well, feed the mouse. And, of course, hug the monkey. There are four monkeys in the picture. Can you find the fourth monkey? 
Don't they so human, right? Our cousins, the monkeys. Oh, it's a little little fellow right there. Okay? So, repeatedly, again and again and again, whether you're receiving feelings of friendliness, compa- you know, of, of support, cherishing, even love from others, or you're outflowing compassion, kindness, happiness that they're happy, love toward others. You know, either way, love is love, flowing in or flowing out, feeding, uh, rather hugging the monkey. Okay? It's kind of a frame. Okay? Frame? Now, safety. So, I want to talk, I want to go through experiential practices a lot in the afternoon, uh, touching, for me, key resources, some, some key resources for each one of these needs. The long-term process of growing resources inside to meet these needs, you know, is a practice over the lifespan. And uh, also, again and again and again, feeling that needs are sufficiently met so we can increasingly and increasingly subtly disengage from the machinery of craving. That, too, is a long process over time. So we won't be able in the next three hours to cover every bit of that obviously, but we can make a start, all right? So I want to go through two key, I think of them as um, inner resources or strengths for being safe and feeling safe. And then I'm happy to talk about particular issues that have to do with anxiety, anger, um, or, you know, the realities of being actually attacked or threatened in ongoing real ways, what to do about that. So, calming the visceral core, right? The core of our body that's absolutely central to staying alive moment to moment are the heart and the lungs. If we're not fed, we can deal with that for days at a time. If we don't have water, certainly hours at a time. The heart stops beating, we're in big trouble. The breath stops, you know, within a minute, we're in big trouble. So... um, to again and again and again calm the visceral core is a great way to hardwire in the core of our being a sense of calm strength. So I want to do some practices of this with you right now. Okay? If you start getting sleepy, it's okay to stand up, open your eyes. It's okay to walk around, maybe in the back of the room, just be aware of other people if you don't mind. Um, and But see what it's like to take on as your object of attention um, a, a sense of calm in the core of your being. Okay? So I, and I'll offer a handful of cues for that, some of which have to do with what's called heart rate variability. So um, probably how many of you have heard about heart rate variability, heart math? Okay, great. A lot of you are going to have something good to learn here. So... <clears throat> The heart beats, even if it's beats like 60 times a minute, averaging one second per beat, as say an interval, that interval between each beat is changing slightly from beat to beat to beat. The more it changes, this side of complete chaos, basically the better. In other words, variability in the heart rate is good as as both a marker of heart health 
and probably being causal in itself. And that uh, relatively high variability is a marker of the degree to which the heart rate slows as we exhale, which is a marker of the strength, in effect, of the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system. That was a chunk of material in a couple sentences. So, as we go through life, trying to maintain an even keel, and as a clueless sailor, I've actually capsized a sailboat. So I really, they didn't have a keel. So I've come to really appreciate the usefulness of a keel, staying on an even keel. A major system, major aspect of the nervous system that keeps us on an even keel is the autonomic branch of the nervous system. The autonomic branch of the nervous system has two major elements in it. The parasympathetic wing and the sympathetic wing of the nervous system. The parasympathetic wing is the more ancient. It originally emerged. It's more our home base. Uh, It is summarized as the rest and digest wing of the nervous system. It's very involved in regulating the viscera, like digestion, and it has a calming and soothing quality to it. In the extreme, parasympathetic activation produces the freeze response. In animals playing dead, literally there are fish that if they are startled or surprised and they play dead, they freeze, they sink to the bottom of the lake where there's no oxygen and they die. They really play dead, right? In humans, playing dead feels like getting sleepy or dissociation or being frozen or immobilized or feeling helpless or just swerving away from something that would call for more activation. So that's an extreme version of the parasympathetic activation. But mainly, the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system helps us relax and chill out and come out of bursts of stressful activity. And the parasympathetic branch is very involved with the first of the two branches of the vagus nerve complex, the part that goes down into us. And as the parasympathetic nervous system is active, um, uh, the heart rate slows. Okay? The sympathetic branch of the nervous system is more recent. Its neurons are much more likely to be what's called myelinated, which are little essentially insulation wrapping around the wires, as it were, of the neurons that connect with each other. Myelinated neurons are able to send their signals 100 times faster. If you notice it, to relax, we kind of have to work at it. But to freak out, happens really quickly. It's fantastic evolutionary development couple hundred plus million years ago, the sympathetic nervous system, but um, it comes with a price. So it's the fight or flight, as it were, branch of the nervous system in extreme. Sympathetic branch is not bad. It's involved with healthy passion, uh, including being uh, strong for social justice or howling at the moon with your friends on a Saturday night, you know, sympathetic nervous system. Uh, but again, too much of that wears us out. And that branch of the nervous system, of the, of the vagus nerve, uh, goes kind of up. So the 
First of the two vagus nerve branches goes down into the viscera. The most recent branch kind of comes up into the face and head and gets very involved with our relationships. Because in our relationships, often it's helpful to be able to be active and energized while still connecting with each other. Okay, that's the framework. So, training in increasing heart rate variability is a great way to strengthen the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system. A lot of people, I mean, some people, I think, would do well to be more activated. I was saying to someone that I'd rather have a therapy client who's angry than someone who's depressed. I'm not against depression. It's more like, but with anger, you know, there's energy. You, you like, do something with it. You've got to kind of regulate it, but you can do something with it. Um, but for my, many of us, we're just way too good at, parasymp- at sympathetic activation. Rushing about, drivenness, chasing one pleasure after another, and we would be really served by strengthening the parasympathetic branch of activation. Okay? And so that's what we're going to play around with here. And there are, are really neat little gizmos you can do, biofeedback devices that, like inner balance or other things like that, in which you can train in calming. And you can see the results in literally your own heart rate. Heart rate variability. Good thing to check out and explore. Okay. So you want to try a practice now? Very good. Okay. Here we go. So take a few breaths and deliberately make your exhalations longer than inhalations and see what happens. For example, inhaling two, three, exhaling two, three, four, five, six. Play around with that for a few breaths. Extending the exhalations is naturally calming. The parasympathetic branch is involved with exhaling, which helps the heart rate slow. And letting breathing be normal. In this practice, I'm going to offer a variety of cues or tools. You may know some of them already. Feel free to find the ones that work best for you. A second suggestion Be aware of the internal sensations of breathing. The sense of air coming in to your nose and throat and lungs or mouth and throat and lungs. The internal sensations of the chest expanding, contracting.
There might be other internal sensations such as the feeling of your heart beating. A third suggestion is to be very aware of your diaphragm as you breathe. And you might want to put a hand on your diaphragm, which is basically just below the kind of top of the upside down V of the rib cage. And even breathe in such a way that you push your diaphragm out away from your body as you inhale. And then it comes back again. So it's kind of going out, away, and then back. Research shows that diaphragm breathing is very good for anxiety. And then as a fourth suggestion, something to explore, it could be a little more challenging. See if you can weave together a feeling of your body being relaxed and calm while at the same time feeling strong. Maybe sitting in a way, moving your posture that feels comfortable and Dignified, stable, and strong. You could bring to mind times that you've had this feeling of calm strength, feeling determined. It's kind of a combination of feeling both tranquil and determined. peaceful and strong. 
really useful combination. See if you can help yourself find a feeling of this and then take it into yourself. Notice any subtle tensing up to be strong and exploring releasing that while resting in a felt sense of dignity, capability, and ease. Okay, a fifth suggestion. Um, You can stay with the sense of strength or letting it kind of more move into the background. And see if you can bring awareness as you breathe to the heart area. And then in simple experienced ways, Have a sense of heartfelt feelings flowing into and out of the physical heart area, like lovingness or compassion, or receiving love in the area of the heart. Perhaps sometimes in rhythm with the breath, inhaling love, exhaling love.
And then last, as a bonus and a challenge, see if you can get a sense of these three qualities sort of weaving together of heartfeltness, strength, and ease, calm. The Buddha spoke a lot about establishing, sort of establishing a combination of open-heartedness, strength, and peacefulness. Letting these qualities establish themselves in you as you establish yourself in them. Taking a last minute, you might like to open your eyes while staying in whatever is for you, a combination of open-hearted, calm strength. Because very often when we need this the most, we've got to keep our eyes open. on back. It's great to do longer practices. And often I find it's really helpful to do these short bite-sized practices to get a taste, you know, differentiate to integrate of these different things. Uh, anybody want to share or bring up a question or comment? Yeah, microphone there. If you put your hand up, there you go. Yeah. Um, is there any preference to, I know breathing in through the nostrils, but breathing out, is it okay to breathe out through your mouth? Sure. Yeah. Some... Do a longer... Oh, 
to breathe, inhale through the nose, exhale through the mouth. Yeah, I think that's great. And um, just a detail, there are these yogic traditions, like thousands of years of pranayama, people training. And I think we're learning more and more why different things work and how great it is to try them. And, and often we just find what works best for us. And that's great. Yeah. Uh, anybody else? Just that practice. I'm, I'm especially interested in what you found uh, with that combination at the end of open-hearted, calm strength, a sense of that? No? Question, comment? Do I see a hand? I see a hand all the way in the back. If you keep your hand up, great. And then I see you too. Okay, great. I think for me, one of the things uh, was the love flowing in and out or, you know, having that heartfelt feelings. Um, Maybe this is just a state I'm in today, but I was more anxiety flowing through as well. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on... When you try to go to that place of calm, um, how do you how do you get there? Right. Okay. So, first, really natural. Again, we're scared monkeys a lot. So, and sometimes we have a lot of reason to be frightened. Or, uh, um, so, <clears throat> I'll say it like this: <clears throat> It's also natural that when we attempt to grow resources, the brain associates to their opposite. So let's say we start focusing, as we'll do later today, on feeling cared about. That can bring up feelings of not being so cared about. It's a really natural thing. So then the question becomes what to do about it. Um, you and I spoke briefly. Sometimes it's actually helpful when a so-called block arises, something distracting, to shift attention to it. Because there's something useful to learn there. Maybe it's telling us something. Whoa, I'm really anxious about something. What's this? I want to explore that. Often, we know what it is. It's the usual suspect. You know, I know you. I, I know what that's about. And it's not particularly productive to, to go back to it. It's, what's more productive is to focus on growing the resource. But here's a key point. If you're trying to let go or let in, those second and third of the three great ways to productively engage the mind, and they don't have traction, we just can't release it, or we're trying to grow something and we're just it's not happening, that's very often a clue, usually a clue, to go back to letting be. We need to experience our experience more fully, especially the more vulnerable or younger layers of it. We've got to go back to the experience and open to it most fully. So sometimes with anxiety, the truth is the person is actually not really feeling the anxiety. They're getting caught up in thoughts or spinning out about it. But what's actually not happening is the full feeling of the primary experience of anxiety. So that's very important to do. It's also important to appreciate in terms of practicing with anxiety that anxiety is a natural signal of the body when something's not quite right. And then the mind looks outside the body for the reason. But the reason is because our immune system is active inside. There's some kind of inflammatory process inside us related to one irritant or allergen or another, perhaps. Or an ongoing low-grade condition of dysbiosis in the gut. There's a lot of research these days on the connection between the microflora, the little critters, you know, in the digestive tract and the nervous system. So 
I'm not a physician, I'm not trying to give medical advice, but I just want to name that sometimes something is out of kilter in our physiology, which then leads our mind to be anxious or depressed or irritable. And so it's really useful to pay attention to what can I do about that, and also not add to it. The Buddha made this great distinction between the first and the second dart in life. He said there is inevitable physical, and by extension, emotional discomfort in life, right? Headaches, toothaches, um, the loss of one's people we love, our natural reaction to rejection or, you know, contempt coming at us, things like that. Um, first dart of life. But then we add second darts to the first dart. Our own reactions to things, including our reactions, frankly, to situations that are essentially neutral or even positive. Someone pays us a compliment and we start getting all uptight. Oh my God, now I have to live up to that new standard. Uh, You know what I mean? Second art and third, fifth, and tenth. So it's really helpful to distinguish the primary, quote-unquote, negative experience of the sadness or the hurt or the anger or the anxiety and feel it fully, and being very attentive to what do I add to that? And can I disengage from what I'm feeding or adding to it? That's really useful. Um, I'll leave it there, because we're going to momentarily do some more practices about anxiety, but that's what I would just say about that. Uh, Well, I'll say one last thing about anxiety, which is, if you think about it, what travels through the mind, there are probably two things that really grab us. One is fear, to your point, Brother Steinle Rost. The other is me, <laughs> I. Think of the mind stream, stream of consciousness. There's all this flotsam and jetsam swirling down. Sensations, sounds, feelings, hopes, whatever. Two things really tend to grab us. We privilege them in the mind stream. Fear and the sense of self. And yet they're just contents of consciousness like anything other. So one thing we can do with anxiety as also we can do it with the sense of I or me or mine as the Buddha taught is to recognize that anxiety or the sense of self has the nature of all experiences. What is the nature of all experiences? They're impermanent They have three characteristics. They're transient, they're impermanent. They might have a certain stability, but even there there's a dynamism, a vibrating, a buzzing, a fizzing, impermanent. Second, they're made up of many parts that can be deconstructed. Third, they do not have an independent existence. They lack an essence that's an independent essence. They're empty, in effect. That's the nature of all experiences. Transient, compounded, dependently arising, thus empty of essence. Hardcore Buddhism. This friend of mine calls that bare metal Buddhism. (laughs) That's key the Buddha taught, right? And what's interesting is you may start out conceptually, but you start looking. Every experience of hearing, sensing, wanting, remembering, all of it, even the sense of I, emerging, a sense of self that emerges, has the same nature. It's impermanent, compounded, dependently arising, therefore empty of absolute solidity. Our experiences are like clouds moving through the sky of awareness, not bricks. 
And so, if one way to deal with anxiety is to recognize through insight, vipassana, insight, its nature. Follow me? Right? Like, the Buddha was interested in content, but he was especially interested in the nature of content, the nature of experiences. And through repeatedly recognizing, it may seem really intellectual initially, but when you repeatedly recognize that all of our experiences are transient, right? Made up of parts, dependently arising, they lack an owner, they lack a director, they're just coming and going. And you realize increasingly it's absolutely doomed and futile to try to cling to them to be reliably happy. It's a doomed strategy. And increasingly, we lighten up about our experiences and we take them less personally. You start taking your own mind less personally. You see it as the result of 10,000, thousands of factors upstream swirling together in this life, let alone across evolutionary time. Don't even get me going to the Big Bang. You know, this moment of experience. And so it's really artful to bring a quality that I'm going to talk about more and more, although it's implicit in, throughout today, of tenderness and kindness you know, to, our, to this person's process. Happens to have your name tag to bring kindness and sweetness to this person's eddying through the streams of reality without taking it so personally and getting so caught up in it and attached to particular things happening or becoming. Bare metal Buddhism, right there. I was going to say bare knuckle Buddhism, but that didn't work really. Bare metal. Okay? That's, that's a whole piece of practice right there. I'll leave it there. All right. Want to try another practice? Now I want to try tell you one of my favorite ones. Notice you're all right right now. Sometimes we're not all right right now. We're in overwhelming pain. Something terrible has happened to us. We've gotten really, really bad news. We're shocked at some you know, injustice or outrage. We don't feel all right in our core. But most of the time, if you look back, right? Most of the time, I was all right, basically. You were all right, basically. Most seconds of our, most people's lives. Except moment to moment to moment, we tend to have a kind of chronic ongoing anxiety that we don't really need. We can stay alert, we can be strong, while simultaneously feeling basically all right in our core. So especially if people are anxious, this is a really, really useful practice. Noticing you're all right right now. You might notice, as I did when I first started doing this practice, that it's weirdly difficult to keep feeling it. It's like Mother Nature doesn't want you to feel like you're all right. Because then you might lower your guard and chomp, get eaten. So then the trick is to recognize, hey, I can still be you know, vigilant. I can be aware of threats uh, in a reasonably safe setting like here. I don't need to worry about a shark chewing on my leg, you know, or anything like that. And I can afford to lower my guard and soften and see what it's like to just now and now and now feel no basis for fear. All right, you want to try it? All right, here we go. And if you start getting nervous, like, oh my... You know, like, oh, I'll lower my guard, a bad thing will happen, which is really natural. A lot of people are anxious about not being anxious. Because they fear, maybe based on real history, that that's when you lower your guard and things happen, right? So if that happens, help yourself recognize, wait a second, I can tune into that sense of calm, open-hearted strength. 
I can be aware of what's going on around me, maybe even open my eyes, while noticing the truth, the fact, now, in this second, and this second, and this second, my body is basically all right. There might be some pain, there might be some irritation. In my core, I'm basically all right. And take that as your object of meditation. Try it. Here we go. So, being aware of breathing. And by the way, if breathing is alarming to pay attention to, as it is for some people who've been traumatized, it's okay to pick something else. But pick something simple like breathing or the heart beating and notice that it's ongoing. There's enough air to breathe. Whatever might happen in the future, now, heart is beating. Now, I'm basically all right. This practice might start conceptually, help it be experiential. The experiential sense of all rightness may be present for a second or a few seconds in a row and then crumble, try to come back to it. You're simply receiving into awareness what is true. You're basically all right. This is challenging, but see if you can find the experience of feeling so all right in the now, the continuous now, that you can become completely unguarded. Find your own words for this. Because of ongoing all rightness, you can afford to feel unthreatened in the ongoing now or or unguarded, undefended, knowing that you can cope if you must while being wide open resting fearlessly in the all rightness of now.
There might be related experiences of relief or almost a kind of delight or reassurance. Another way to get at this is with a sense of going on being. It may be conceptual at first, but it becomes more and more experienced. Going on being until you're not. Meanwhile, going on being. this practice also, so we finish in a few minutes, you might like to open your eyes. You might even like to move slightly in your chair and see what it's like to bring a little bit of action into the sense of going on being still. Being all right. You could add thoughts in your mind like, I'm still all right. All right. Okay. And for a bonus, if you want, get a sense of being grounded in this all rightness as you bring to mind a situation or a person in your life who is 
mildly to moderately challenging for you. Mildly. And see if you can, and you know, keep stabilizing the sense of, and imagine being grounded in this sense of basic all rightness in your core, around which other things can be passing, but in the core, basically all right, as you are interacting with or dealing with the situation or person. Try that right now. You might have a sense of how the situation or person challenges your sense of all rightness and disturbs it. And what it would be like to reestablish a sense of basic all rightness in your core as you deal with the situation or person. Uh, I want to say a word about that practice and then see if there's a question or comment about it Then segue into a break in a few moments. So, quick point here. This, as I said earlier, there are two amygdala, two amygdalae, etc. Most of the parts of the brain come in pairs, kind of like in Noah's Ark. You know, two zebras, two lizards, two mice, two monkeys. The most ancient parts of the brain, there's just one of them. And one of the most important and ancient parts of the brain for which there's just one, is the hypothalamus. Hypothalamus um, sits more or less on top of the brainstem, very ancient part of the brain. And in many ways, it is the center, it's the, the center control of craving in the brain. It's very involved with thirst and with temperature regulation and primal threats to survival. Interestingly, the root of the word for craving in Pali, the language of early Buddhism, tanha, tanha, craving, the root of that word is thirst. Thirst, something missing, something wrong. Hypothalamus, hypothalamus, very, very important part of the brain if we care about craving and suffering and harm, and not, okay? Well, the body, most of the inputs into the brain originate from within the body. They don't come in from the outside. The body is telling the nervous system its status continually because the the nervous system is the fundamental overall regulator of bodily processes. So it needs to know how the body's doing. Well, if you think about it, unless something's gone terribly wrong, and sometimes it does or has, 
But unless something's gone terribly wrong, most of the inputs coming into the brain, especially running through the hypothalamus, as this central regulator, little dinky thing right connected to the pituitary glands, kind of an extension of it, hypothalamus, most of the inputs coming into the hypothalamus are like the calls of a night watchman in olden days, all is well, all is well, all is well. The heart's still beating. The kidneys are still doing their thing. Lungs are working. Breathing is happening. Yeah, I wish I had more five-star reviews on my Amazon book page, but body's okay. Still breathing. Enough food. Not dying. Not starving. Not about to fall off a mountain. You know, it's okay. Right? Except because most of the inputs into the hypothalamus are, in effect, reassuring, we habituate to them. We tune them out. And then we, we spend our days feeling fearful. Oh, threat level orange, threat level orange. What's about to get me next? So it's really helpful to tune into these primal signals that are originating from within the body. There is enough breathing. There is enough air to breathe. The heart is still beating. The body in its visceral core is still basically all right right now. And that's what we're doing when we do this kind of a practice. It's like we're listening to the reassuring messages of our body. Good. All right, question or comment about how that practice was? Griff? Uh, ironic. Um, just as I started to be prepared to relax, the AC kicked on, and I was freezing. Oh, yeah. And it was like, well, okay, here I am. The best I could do was, so this is cold. Okay. But I couldn't really drop into the to the relaxation. Yeah. Then I got hung up on a word you said. I, would, I didn't... Beyond me? I, I, I couldn't tell what the word was. Going on being? Being. I couldn't, I didn't, I couldn't understand the being. Oh, yeah. So my mind took off with that, like, what's he saying? <laughs> anyway. Being intelligent is a curse, man. <laughs> well, a couple of things. So one, it is interesting that the hypothalamus is really tracking thermoregulation, very primal signal of uneasiness. And so it's important to kind of stay within bounds there. So it's interesting that that was threatened. And in the moment, it might not be authentic to feel all right right now, you know, really. And then you just do the best you can. Uh, with practice, what used to be first darts for us, like feeling chilled, can increasingly not bother us. We recognize it, just like you said, oh, cold, you know, um, oh, unpleasant. But we don't get upset that it's unpleasant. So that, that's real. Going on being was the phrase from the child psychiatrist Daniel Winnicott that's a, that a child needs to have a sense, needs to ideally develop a sense of basic trust in going on living, going on existing, including existing in the minds of caregivers like parents. I am going on being inside you. Or in that great teaching the story of the runaway bunny. Most parents know that story, that the child wants to go, but knows that it will, the child will always be sought, pursued. Winnicott had this lovely comment about, I'm a long-time child therapist too, how much kids like playing peekaboo games or hide-and-seek, you know, like that, right? And he said to a child, a joy to be hidden, a disaster not to be found. We want to be found. We want to know they're going to come for us, right? 
No one left behind. And so when we don't feel that they're coming for us, it really gets us. So for me, it's really important to, to authentically communicate to other people, I am not a threat to you. I have my needs, I'll stand my ground, I'm going to inform you. There may well be consequences, but I'm not here to threaten you needlessly, including inadvertently through the impact uh, of my own privilege or position. Who I am to you. I'm not going to. I'm going to pay attention to that and not needlessly threaten you. Also, to give people the answer to the thought balloon, the question hovering over most people's heads most of the time: Are you going to hurt me? Are you going to listen to me? Am I going to exist in your mind? Are you going to thou me instead of itting me? In terms of Martin Buber's typology of relationships: I thou, I it, it it. Right? So we want to know that. So that's really, really, really important. Um, the going on being part. Okay. And then, yeah, I'll leave it there. And then sometimes it's useful to put on a jacket. You know, or to get away from the air conditioner. <laughs> One more person, then I'll... Great. Yeah, right there. Just wanted to share. Yeah. Um, uh, what resonated with me is when you said, I can cope when I need to. That helped with my last meditation. Um, I'm so busy in my everyday life that I forget to take a moment to reflect on my resiliency. Um, When I was eight, um, we left Bosnia in a civil war. And I was in the war for about six weeks with my parents. And it was a lot of fight or flight (laughs) responses. Um, We then immigrated to Germany and then came to the U.S. when I was 13. Um, and I forget sometimes that I'm all right. (laughs) I've coped a lot, and, yeah, I get caught up in the small things nowadays, but today is a good day to remember that. Thank you very much. I've coped a lot, and we're going to be all right. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you a lot. Glad you're here. You made it, yeah. So on the way into the break, I want to add something I didn't do here, which also might help you be energized. And I want to talk a little bit about, kind of like you said, feeling strong. Because if you think of it, anxiety is the natural result of feeling a mismatch between threat and resource. Okay? If we're, um, like for myself, I'll be driving. I grew up in L.A. Started driving when I was 16. Driven on freeways a lot. I'm driving on the freeway in the rain between two big trucks with my wife at my side. I'm tracking the trucks. I'm tracking the rain. I don't. I'm tracking the threat, but I feel competent and capable, and I know those trucks are going to stay in their lanes. I think, you know, I'm good. My wife, she's white knuckling on the handle, and she's pushing the imaginary brake. She doesn't feel sufficiently resourced, (laughs) right? So it's that mismatch. So the thing is, if you think about it, dealing with anxiety a lot is about is bringing down bringing down actual threats and bringing down any overestimation of threats that are delusional, paper tiger paranoia, overestimating threats, right? And also to deal with the formula for anxiety is to increase actual and perceived resources. We don't want to overestimate our actual resources, but we don't want to make the mistake that people routinely do is underestimating their resources, including their own capability and inner strength, including forms of strength, 
of just simply enduring, living to see the sunrise, you know, putting daylight between yourself and the disaster, let's say, of your childhood or something like that, right? So I think one of the things that's really helpful for people to deal with anxiety to, is to increase the sense, the, felt, the sense of strength, the felt sense of strength. There are different ways into that, um, so I want to take you through a little tiny practice of that. Okay? So, if you like, bring to mind times that you felt strong. Physically strong, emotionally strong, maybe a time you were de- you felt determined. I've had a lot of experience in wilderness, I like that. Maybe the feeling holding that yoga pose the last minute or ten seconds. I hated my yoga teachers. I loved them, but I hated them. Hold that pose, hold that pose. <laughs> Take strength. Know what it feels like. You might think about what your what's the expression in your face when you're determined. You're not at war with them, but you mean business. Determination, the feeling of that. And now if you're up for it, and you don't need to do it if you don't want to, but if you like Come to standing with me. I'll stand up with you. And, you know, don't stare at other people. So, you know, you know you're not being stared at. Try not to whack others. But see if you can find a position in, that even that's embodied for you that feels strong. Maybe if you like move or not putting on some kind of macho posture, but just like leaning in, you know. A sense of dignity and worth, gravity. Like an embodied sense of strength. What's this like? Breathing. Notice any reluctance or impediment to feeling strong? Maybe you're not supposed to be strong, even though you really are. Letting that go as you can. Claiming your strength. Because you're strong, you don't need to wrangle with others. Be contentious with them. You don't need to fuss with that. You're strong. And as a bonus, imagining being this way with a situation or person who is mildly to moderately challenging. (laughs) Being aware of ways that your strength might become brittle or, or overly aggressive around them or you might feel weakened around them, immobilized. And just helping yourself being aware of this mild to, mild to moderate challenge while continuing to feel strong. What would that be like?
Okay. Good. That was the practice. Let's have a strong break. And I strongly hope you will join me in being one of the Spirit Rock stewards and joining the stewardship program with the forms outside the door, if you want. Okay, come on back if you don't mind in 15 minutes, which will be 3.40. I'm going to give you a 19-minute break. Isn't that great? Okay, 3.40. Please come back.
teachings from people who are really wise, you know, that I look to as teachers, um, freely offered. You go to my teacher page there, Rick Hansen, S-O-N, at Dharma Seed, and within a week or so, the most recent uh, material from this workshop will be posted. Okay? That's how to access that. People, so I'm going to speak to three questions, and I'll do it kind of briskly, then we'll move into, da-da-da, resources for satisfaction. Okay. So, let's see. First, do you need to start with safety? I tend to start with safety because if we can't address it, it's hard to get to satisfaction and connection. On the other hand, for many people, uh, even just raising the topic of safety brings up rapid associations. It's like a slippery slope to trauma and primal threats to safety. So it can be safer to build up other kind of non-specific resources. First, like feeling strong, right? Or developing mindfulness, getting more control over attention, calming, just in general. It's also true that in terms of our three needs, Say, you know, safety, satisfaction, connection. Love is the universal medicine. Because love, flowing in or flowing out, meets our need for connection. It's also rewarding, satisfaction, and it's a primal signal of safety. What do little kids want to do when they're scared? You know, they want to find their secure base that they're attached to, including their, their binky, you know? Or the memory of their, um, you know, grandmother. Like, ooh, we need that. So sometimes we use resources elsewhere to meet a need, let's say, for safety. In general, though, I find, like, if I'm working with a couple and there's, uh, you know, it, there's a lack of safety, emotional or otherwise, you really have to address that first. How do you, how do you go from there? Uh, safety needs tend to, uh, you know, hijack other needs in general. A related question was, if a person is doing gratitude practice or wants to be grateful, and we're about to segue into gratitude, uh, sometimes what comes up is a fear of losing what one is grateful for, Right? or not having it, that can also come up in relationships, bringing to mind people we love, then we suddenly we fear to lose them. Really understandable. What to do about that? I think it's helpful to appreciate that we can receive in the moment what is available to in this, us in this moment while recognizing, as the Buddha and many others have taught, the fundamental uncertainties of life, the transience of a life, I believe um, there are these five reflections that come out of Tibet. They're questions. Is it given to me to escape disease? Is it given to me to escape aging? Is it given to me to escape death? Yes. Wow, I'll talk to you later. 
But, you know, I can understand people can say, yeah, you know, in terms of salvation and whatnot. But, okay, I'll just keep going, though, uh, in this more secular frame. Uh, fourth, is it given to me to be, is it given to me to escape being separated one way or another, at one time or another, from everything I love? Is it given to me, fifth, to escape inheriting the results of my actions? For better or worse. That's pretty real, right? So, for me, as a practice, it's to live in the razor's edge, in a sense, the sweet spot of receiving the moment as it arises, as it disappears. In impermanence, there is there are endless endings. And that part of impermanence can be deeply disturbing if we really, really open to it. It can be wrenching to feel the groundlessness of things. Like, and to know, factually, is the way I would put it for myself, is that the movie of our experience, the movie of phenomenology, can stop suddenly at any moment. Right? We don't know. And so that sense of ending or disappearance can be really alarming. On the other hand, it's balanced by endless arisings. Endless arisings. And it can help to be centered in the arisings to tolerate the endings and come closer and closer to an immediacy of the practice of recognizing impermanence, which was, in some ways, the central teaching, really, of the Buddha, at the heart of the matter, recognizing transience. So, regarding gratitude or other things, it's to appreciate it while it's happening, while simultaneously letting go of it and knowing that it, that it could all pass away. And, and so I, here's where so many people have spoken or written about this or taught about it quite eloquently. I'm thinking right here of this line from Dylan Thomas, the poet, Welsh poet, uh, Time held me green and dying while I sang in my chains like the sea. Whoa. Or I think of T.S. Eliot in this poem he has. He has this line, I've thought of it many times. It's kind of at the heart of equanimity and compassion. Teach me to care or teach us to care and not to care. The two together, right? To care and not to care. Right? Or... As Neil Young puts it, rocking in the free world. <laughs> Meanwhile. So to me, that's the art, right? To receive what is available while knowing that it will pass. And, it's through the, and the knowing of its passing heightens the sweetness of its arising. And we have to come to terms with that. And interestingly, as we repeatedly internalize the wholesome, the beneficial, the enjoyable, craving tends to subside. Because we've taken it into ourselves. So many people, frankly, are like, as they say in Tibet, in a hell realm of the hungry ghosts. These apparently godlike beings who have appetites represented by enormous bellies and their capacity to satisfy their appetites represented by a pinhole for a mouth. Sounds like American consumer culture to me. You know, endlessly chasing, right? But not 
actually taking in. As we take in, our appetites are satisfied increasingly. And then typically, craving subsides. So to me, that's a way of relating to to gratitude. Um, Okay? And then, last question that came in was a really trivial one. What is awareness? (laughs) Okay, so... I prefer to use awareness rather than consciousness. That's a really complicated term, a lot of associations. For me, awareness is really straightforward. It's the field through which experiences occur. And neurologically, it, in effect, it's a, it's a field of representing through which what is represented passes. Sights pass, sounds pass, thoughts pass, memories pass. That's the field of awareness. Uh, the Buddha described awareness as one of the five aggregates or heaps of existence, particularly experiential existence, the life of the mind. And he didn't privilege awareness. He didn't make it cosmic or uh, uh, independent. He said awareness arises dependently, so in a very kind of natural way. So that's how I mean the word awareness. And I think that the squirrels in my backyard are aware of their surroundings, they, I think, uh, dogs are aware. It doesn't mean they're aware of awareness, but they're having experiences. They are alert. They're responsive to their environment. They go through sleep. All animals with a nervous system have their equivalent of sleep, including fruit flies. I wonder what ladybugs dream, right? But they certainly, you know, there is awareness. So I think of awareness in that really, really simple way. What happens with practice is that what is being represented, the signals, if you will, moving, that are being represented, moving through awareness, get quieter and quieter and quieter. They kind of drop out. So increasingly, what's mainly present is just awareness. There's just kind of a awareness there, right? And it becomes, in effect, a field of like fertile noise, always ready to represent the next thing. So to lay some heavy stuff on you, briefly, if you think of it, the field of awareness is effectively unconditioned. It's like a whiteboard. It can represent anything, right? To the extent it's a natural phenomenon of squirrels, lizards, monkeys, and us, awareness is conditioned, it arose through evolution on planet Earth and so forth, but inside awareness, it's effectively unconditioned. Like a whiteboard, right? In that sense, it's like what the Buddha pointed to as transcendental unconditionality. It's not the same as, necessarily, although maybe it partakes of cosmic consciousness that's above my pay grade, right? But it's like it. And what I'm getting at here is there are aspects in conditioned natural reality that are plausibly like ultimate transcendental reality, such as unconditioned or stillness or spaciousness. And through exploring these aspects of our experience down here on planet Earth, for those who care for this sort of thing, like the Buddha, um, it can be kind of a very useful way to potentially become more accessible to and 
more permeable to the actual transcendental, unconditioned that the Buddha and others have pointed to. A field of possibility, not yet conditioned, always just prior to this moment of conditioned actuality. I think that's super cool. (laughs) Okay. You had a question comment? Then, boom, we're going to be so satisfied the remaining hour of this fundamental, of this workshop. All right. Oh, there we go. Microphone, please. Thanks. Um, There's actually two things. One really quickly in regards to awareness. Um, Are you the human dreaming you're a butterfly or a butterfly dreaming you're a human? (laughs) I think you might have gotten that one. Um, and then in regards to uh, gratitude practice, um, you were commenting on how some people uh, think of like a person or a place and it's a big thing and they fear losing that. But gratitude practice can also um, be smaller things. Like in the moment, as you were saying, a lot of times what I do is it can be like a song that I'm hearing on the radio and it's a song I really love and I'm like, oh, I'm grateful that this song is playing. Or I'm taking a walk and I see a crane and it and it's there for a few seconds and it flies off and I say, oh, this was a be- beautiful moment. Thank you for it sort of a thing. But it, it's kind of just reminded me that we can be grateful in both big and small ways. Oh, thank you very much. And particularly the small ones. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That's great. Well, let's use that, if it's okay, as a natural segue into a practice here. Gratitude and gladness. I touched on it earlier. Um, it's really interesting. I, uh, I've known people who are my own teachers, and very often, like, I'll ask them, what's your practice? And I'm, you know, I'm thinking of someone in particular who said, you know, more and more, just gratitude. Particularly just an ongoing, simple, nonverbal, uncomplicated gratitude. You know, and sort of, for me, it shows up somewhat as sort of like awestruck gratitude, like, you know. I want to show you something. I'm going to make this go away. Okay, so you may know this picture that I'm about to show you. Okay, see it? That's, you may know, it's the so called deep field shot from the Hubble Space Telescope. For about 20 years about twenty years ago, the Hubble Space Telescope took a picture of a tiny, tiny pinhole in the sky, about the size of a dime at 200 feet. And it did a long exposure, which meant, in effect, it was sucking in light that traveled from billions of light years away, which means began traveling billions of years ago, down that little tunnel, if you will, in the sky. And they wondered, what would they see in that tiny, tiny, tiny pinhole in the sky? That's what they saw in almost every bit of light you see up there is a galaxy. Any, almost in that picture are about 200 galaxies in that single pinhole in the sky. Some of them 5 billion light years or so away. And now with advanced technologies, they're increasingly able to see more and more. Based on this, if they're just two, if they're two hundred galaxies in one pinhole in the whole, if you think the inside of the sphere of the sky, 
active scientists have now um, approximated about two trillion galaxies in the universe. All present. We were all together in the Big Bang, right? That's a quote from a cool astronomer. You know, wow. So for me, how could you not be just gobsmacked with awe, awestruck gratitude? It's just like being here at all. Okay. So let's do a practice of gratitude in ways large and small, right? Okay. So now I have to, like, where'd my slides go? Yes. Yes. So we're going to go through all the wonderful material you've covered so far here. See how great you are? We're going to get to the monkey soon. Monkeys coming. Yeah. Good. Oh, wow. Here we are. Yes. Okay, here we go. So it helps to start with ideas, just knowing, but then helping it become a feeling. And I'll, I'll give fewer words for this practice. This, there's a traditional saying, your mind takes its shape from what it rests upon. The modern update would be the brain takes its shape from what our minds repeatedly rest upon. What's it going to be? Resentments, grievances, self-criticism, useless worries, or gratitude, gladness, feeling all right, love. So, bringing to mind some of the things you feel thankful for. There's a humility in gratitude because it's what it's the gifts we've received. Find to have related feelings of gladness, like happiness, thinking of places or people that bring a smile. And then increasingly taking the feeling of gratitude and maybe related feelings of happiness as your object of, med- of meditation. There's a traditional factor in early Buddhism, it's called sukha. It means happiness, which includes contentment and tranquility. In the ancient languages, sukha is the basis for the word sucrose or sugar, sweetness. It's a place for resting your mind on the sweetness of gratitude and gladness. If you like, you can engage this as a kind of concentration practice or absorption meditation in which you really give yourself over to this happiness or gratitude, the sweetness. 
filling your mind, spreading through your body. It may happen for you that softer or subtler qualities of contentment are more natural or authentic now. That's fine. Taking that as your meditation. You might like to add, if you haven't already, a sense of beauty or awe.
maybe also a knowledge of how we all live having received the efforts of countless numbers of humans around the world who've lived before us, making their efforts, slowly but surely contributing, and then all the non-human creatures, all the life that has lived and died so that we can live today. Perhaps soft thoughts like, thank you. And in the last minute, being aware of any places inside your body or mind that could soften and receive gratitude or gladness or happiness more fully, even amidst pain, loss, worries, I think I'd like to segue from here directly into the next brief meditation, Enoughness Already. It's an exploration of what it's like to be in the moment 
very mindful of subtleties of craving, including grasping or becoming. The Buddha really brought a lot of attention to our drive to become, to plan, to and imagine ourselves into a future. There's a place for a little bit of that, but it becomes very habitual. So see what it's like to rest in a sense of enoughness already, including, as the meditation says, um, uh, imagining this feeling of enoughness already as one aspires, as one is lived by one's ambitions and capacities and, and, and their wholesome impulse to be expressed in our life, lived by that, you know, ambition, goals, creativity, moving through us while feeling a sense of enoughness already. Okay, let's try this. So, in this meditation, let's begin with a natural segue from gratitude, a sense of having received a lot, or even in this moment, the sense of receiving, like receiving the air we're inhaling, receiving the next moment of existence, maybe a sense of receiving the efforts put into this land and the center. Receiving the gifts of green growing things with every inhalation, the oxygen they've released that you are taking in, receiving. It might land in you with some usefulness to realize that probably you've already received more pleasures than almost every other human who's ever lived. Including the kings and queens of a generation ago. Pleasures of music, of food. In a far from perfect life, just being aware. Wow. Including, to the extent you've had good fortune, compared to so many other people alive today. It's easy to take these for granted, but instead... Just without guilt, simply recognizing, wow. I've received so much already.
So you're taking increasingly a sense of enoughness as the meditation, knowing that it's all right to seek for more while also feeling that there's enough. Helping yourself find an authentic sense of enoughness as the meditation. So that drivenness or pressure for more falls away. Be mindful of the habitual movement for more or for becoming. And when this arises in your mind, as it routinely does, be aware of it and and see if you can disengage from it and return to a sense of contentment or enough already. In this moment as it is. And then in the last minute, if you want, opening your eyes and receiving so much visual stimuli, colors, shapes, an almost overwhelming fullness visually given to us moment after moment. Who could want for anything more?
How is how are those two practices for you? Any comments about them or questions related to them? And then we'll move into relationships. Great. Please, the microphone right here, Richard. If you keep your hand up, he can find you. There you go. Thank you. Thank you so much for this workshop. I was looking forward to it for a long time. Uh, I have something really quickly to say. I noticed a lot of having, what I'm having, instead of receiving. Could you say something about this? Because having, I have a house, I have a garden, I have a dog, you know. Yeah. That sounds so materialistic. Yeah. Uh, receiving, on the other hand, is also something that is given to me without much effort, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, <clears throat> first, um, it's one thing to know that we have something. It's another thing to feel the benefit of of it as an experience. So right there, there could be a sense of, oh, I have a house, and what does it feel like to feel sheltered from the storm? And to think about so many people who don't have shelter. I was in India uh, just a few, six months ago, essentially, and for my very first visit there, and, and I was just so struck by the situation so many people live in there. Uh, you know, and so so it's one thing to just to feel the appreciation of shelter and the conditions and the privileges often that enable a person to have that particular thing. So it's the feeling of it. So that that's a key distinction. Can you feel it? You know, can you move from the idea to the experience? And there are things that help people do that over time because a lot of people have a hard time. They know it intellectually, but they don't feel it. So. Here's kind of a three key questions. Are you recognizing the good facts? Can you see them? Oh, I've got, I do have a house. Oh, I do have a dog. Can you feel it? Do you feel what it's like to feel sheltered? To feel safe and to appreciate that? Do you feel what it's like that your dog loves you? No one else may, but your dog. You know, what's, what's the saying in, in politics? If you want a friend, get a dog. You know, anyway. So, and then critically important, once you're seeing it and feeling it, are you taking it in? Are you receiving the experience into yourself? And there too it helps to explore softening the body, staying with it, trusting. As long as those neurons are firing together for a while, they're designed to start wiring together too. So you can trust that process. Okay. Then you can play around even farther with it. Like, nerd that I am, dogs. The domestication of dogs is amazing. Dogs can read human minds better than any other animal, as far as we know. Uh, And they're amazing. So just think about, wow, thank you, all these people and all these dogs, all these wolves that became kind of dogs hanging around the Neanderthal fires, you know? Thank you. And just, so, like, you just think, oh, my dog, roof, roof likes me, wants some food, has poop. I grew up with dogs. Um, but, wow, the dogness of this dog is an enormous gift to me. 
And my capacity to recognize the dogness of my dog. So, you know, you kind of go like that. Yeah. I find that this practice is subtly, it's like the one of noticing you're all right right now is subtly powerful. And it breaks us out of this delusion that we're actually beleaguered and about to be destroyed. Um, Also, this contentment practice, enoughness already, it's really wild to appreciate that in this moment, it's usually enough already. Really powerful, and it undermines. I think of this practice as like cultural disobedience, because we're staying against the consumer culture that says no more, my precious, more, more. You know, hey, enough already. Yeah, I mean, nice to have another shirt or sweater, or whatever, and fix this thing. But wow, thank you so much already. Great. Okay, one more person, then I'll move on to relationships. Yeah. And being mindful is, so much of the foundations of mindfulness in Buddhism are about mindfulness of more or less craving. And so in this practice of enoughness already and contentment, you can just watch, you know, the automaticity of chasing becoming. And then instead, so much already. Wow, thank you. So it's as you're guiding us through this uh, mindfulness, should we be trying to apply that that heal acronym of you know recognizing yep. it and enriching it and then absorbing it? Is that yeah. what you're describing? Yes, um, I could probably be better at specifically and explicitly nudging <laughs> you in that direction. You know, but so I appreciate you bringing that up. Yes, as we are having these experiences, here we're doing it in a workshop setting, kind of on cue. It's a little artificial initially, but once the song is playing in the inner iPod, it's a real experience. And any time we're having these experiences, it's helpful to stay with them and, and absorb them. Now naturally, when you're doing a meditation on something like gratitude or feeling all right or feeling strong, you're kind of naturally enriching and absorbing it because you're staying with the experience. You're feeling it in your body. You know, you're kind of giving over to it. And if you want to add things like uh, feeling like you're a human sponge and really absorbing it into yourself, or if you want to do linking, like that feeling, let's say, of strength is connecting maybe with old feelings like I've had, of feeling small or weak or overpowered, going back into early childhood as a really young, dorky kid going through school, uh, in my case. Um, Yeah, you can do that too. That's great. Yeah, great. Okay. Relationships. Okay. So I want to focus on um, a feeling of worth, and it relates to confidence, And it's particularly interesting because in many spiritual circles, uh, appreciating what in psychology are called narcissistic supplies is a taboo. Like you're not supposed to like it when people compliment you or even pull for a little bit of well-earned acknowledgement as skillful means to fill that big hole in your heart. And yet, often... It's because we didn't get enough normal, necessary narcissistic supplies when we were a kid 
or in our last relationship or on our last job that we're left with a hunger inside that drives craving. Got that? What do you think about that? It's paradoxical in a funny way. Through there's a there's a line, I think it was Jeffrey Epstein, I think. No, no, this is a, a psychoanalyst who said basically, you've got to be somebody before you can become nobody. We need to feel like a somebody before we can do practices of selflessness and not self and oneness with everything to become nobody, in a sense. Right? So um and as someone who had a real shortage of healthy narcissistic supplies coming in when I was a kid, uh, it has been, and I think for many other people as well, really useful to listen to the longings in the heart for feeling seen, wanted. Hello, Turkey. <laughs> like, hello, gratitude for Turkey. And just think about all the dinosaurs that were before the turkey, before the birds arose and all that. Thank you, turkey. That's funny. They say, like, I've, I've never been an actor, really, but they say actors don't like, adult actors don't like acting with children because children always upstage the adult actor. So I'm upstaged by a, a bird. Thank you. <laughs> Two of them. Oh, great. Two birds. Well, if you could... Still focus here. I'll just keep going, right? <laughs> Narcissistic supplies. So think about yourself. Maybe you got plenty of them. Or maybe you're really doing okay. On the other hand, ask yourself, you know, was there a shortfall, particularly for me, even in my case, an introvert uh, with a lot of kind of self-reliance and just determination, still it was not enough for me. And if a person is particularly sensitive interpersonally, or and or extroverted, and or in certain situations that really call for more support from others, maybe things could be really missing, or could have been really missing for you. Or you might think in relationships these days, or work environments, is there a shortfall of appropriate acknowledgement of you? Not turning you into being vain or arrogant or exploiting others, but appropriate healthy supplies. For many of us, it's actually a shortfall. And I find, therefore, it's really interesting to give people um, appropriate, not manipulatively, but appropriate reassurance or valuing of them, appreciation of them, and inclusion of them. It's really a service to others. So in a moment, we're going to do a practice for just bringing to mind in this kind of artificial setting, Usually we do it in the flow of life. But in here, we'll do a practice of bringing to mind um, uh, healthy, appropriate uh, experiences of feeling included, cared about, and valued. Right? And then helping that sink in, even with some linking that I'm going to do ex- um, explicitly with you and um, touching places inside that have been, felt let down or left out or mistreated understandably, by other people. Okay? All right? Want to try? Okay. Worst case, just look at the turkeys. All right. So, but you realize it's okay to take in feeling good about yourself. In the authority. 
vest, with the authority vested in me by Spirit Rock Meditation Center, I'm telling you, it's okay to feel like a good person. A lot of people, it's a huge taboo, let alone to be seen thinking that they're a good enough person. Okay, here we go. So, I'm going to offer some cues. I'll say as little as possible. Starting with, I think of five aspects of caring or being cared about. So, bring to mind beings that you care about. For example, beings that you include. You you include them. You open the door and you let the dog come in. You include them in your life. It's kind of entry level. Or beings that you empathize with. You see them. You feel them. You're focusing on the feeling of being caring. Also, could be beings that you appreciate. You respect them. You're grateful to them. You value them. This is a third aspect of caring, appreciating. Also beings you like. What's it feel like to feel kind or friendly? Affectionate? And beings you love. Cherish. Feeling loving. And you can turn it around now and focus on receiving caring. Notice any difficulty in this. You're helping yourself have an experience here for one reason or another, in one way or another, feeling cared about yourself. In other words, being aware of what it's like to feel included, In the present or the past, you're helping yourself have an experience.
feeling seen, even imperfectly, others who empathize with you or at least try to understand, feeling listened to. Can you help yourself feel appreciated? Beings who have seen good in you, been grateful to you, respected you, valued you, what's it feel like to feel valued? It's very natural if other things come up, acknowledge them and then try to bring attention back to feeling cared about one way or another. You could feel liked. Like what's it feel like to be around people who like you? Even if they drive you crazy sometimes. Friendly toward you. In good ways or warm toward you or affectionate toward you. They like you. Even if it's kind of simple joking around. You like them, they like you. And feeling loved from beings in the present or the past. Staying out of complicated narratives about relationships. Focusing on the feeling in the body and receiving into yourself. Letting it come in. Letting it spread inside you. Feeling cared about one way or another. And if you like, as long as it works for you, you might be aware through linking of old feelings or even current ones of not being loved or valued or approved of off to the side, off to the side, keep it small, while focusing mainly 
on authentic feelings of being appreciated, liked, loved. Aware of both of these in the field of awareness, being cared about in the front, not so cared about off to the side. If you get distracted by the not cared about negative stuff, just drop it. Also, you might have a sense of feeling loved and valued and cherished even, being all right, you know, spreading into, rippling into those maybe empty places inside that weren't cherished enough or protected enough or feeling loved, spreading and touching and soothing places inside that have been hurting. If you can do this without getting upset about it, you might have a sense of being cared about one aspect or another, sinking down into younger places inside you, touching younger places that have been longing or hurting. It's really fine for the imagination to be creative in this kind of practice. For example, you might imagine that uh, wise adult parts of you are communicating with younger layers in you or younger parts of you or that younger person you were back then, even as a little child. And being comforting, Maybe saying some things like it wasn't your fault. Or people will want you someday. 
or just, I love you, I see you, you're beautiful, whatever, or no words at all. There could be a sense of receiving into the longing, hurting, maybe young places. They are receiving the caring that's coming in. And then in the last few minutes here of this practice, letting go of anything painful or missing and taking some moments to kind of recognize yourself these days and seeing and appreciating good things in yourself, seeing yourself objectively, the efforts you make, your good intentions. Your beneficial qualities. Recognizing things you've dealt with or overcome lived through. Recognizing your worth. If it's meaningful, recognizing the true nature inside, the innate wakefulness and spirit in some sense within you. And with all this in the last minute, letting go of needs to impress others or get their approval. Feeling your own 
enoughness already. Any comments or questions about that one? And were you you were okay to do that? That's pretty hardcore, but good for you. Yeah, right there. Thank you. Uh, so I had a question. Uh, it's not always easy to let go uh, when you have been um, kind and friendly and affectionate and giving, and uh, and in return, uh, you're not appreciated, uh, they don't value you, um, they don't care about you, uh, so they're basically takers, you're giving, and you, you they're ta- there are a lot of takers in this world, so how do you protect yourself uh, from those people, especially if they are your family? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'll just share a few um, things that have been useful for me, right? So, um, there's a lot about this. Sometimes we're just in a role that we can't, I mean, we're just in that role and that's the way it is. We can't get out of it or it would just be too terrible to get out of it. Like, we're just committed to caring for this aging parent until... They eventually pass away, and meanwhile, you know there there could be issues with that. So there's a place I think for looking at roles that we um, are not actually forced into that we have some say in, and we can deal with and see the ways that other people sometimes write us into those scripts, including classically caregiving and caretaking roles that certain people, especially women in society, get ridden into that role. And um, so I think it's helpful to be thoughtful about what's actually really necessary and consistent with my own core integrity and what's added to that. That other people are trying to put me into with good intentions or just habit or just cultural norms because that's what their mother or grandmother did or what have you. But really, it's it's not intrinsic in my own morality, my own sense of duty or integrity of care. And also, to what extent am I habitually writing myself into that role? And to what extent am I... Um, you know, not that I'm blaming myself, the so-called blame the victim, no, but just seeing factually how am I doing that, and which creates opportunity. So I think that's a key thing, behaviorally. And even though I'm a really soft-hearted, touchy-feely therapist, boy, I've really appreciated over time the, the centrality of action 
action and willfulness and effort and discipline over time. You know, there's a place for that. So let's suppose, let's just check that box as much as possible, behaviorally, right? Then we're left with, what do we do with people who, um, you know, are difficult? And there's a lot of Buddhist stuff about that, including compassion or kindness for the so-called difficult person and how you work with that. Uh, I, I find from myself that it's useful to explore what I call the strong heart, where we both have goodwill for the other, even if we also want justice to be served, and we don't want to have anything else to do with them. We're not trying, we don't have ill will. The Buddha really focused on the poison of ill will and disengaging from ill will. And I read a really neat teaching recently from the Dalai Lama who teased apart anger and hate. He says sometimes, you can imagine his situation, and the Tibetan people occupied. It's an occupied nation now since the 50s, essentially. Um, uh, you can be angry. And sometimes anger is a really useful fuel. It orients us to what's wrong. And it energizes us, especially against helplessness and structural forms of oppression. Place for anger. But that's different from hate. Hate's a poison. And so just separating those out. You know, sometimes hate arises, but it's... We don't want to let it invade the mind and remain, as he put it, in his own movement into awakening. So um, we find a place, hopefully, where we said increasingly where we practice. And it's hard in the beginning, often. In, In my family, my parents had a monopoly on anger, the expression of anger. The kids were not allowed to express anger. It was really hard for me to assert myself when I landed in adulthood. I had to manipulate myself to eventually say no to my father on a telephone call about a trivial matter when I was in my mid-20s because I, I knew I had to break through. And he wasn't mean to me or anything, but it was just saying no to my father. I had to work at that. So we had to work at it sometimes. But we find this place where we both... We're centered in compassion and kindness and we don't have hate. We might be irritated and we've had it, but we're not going to war with the other and we speak truth to power. We name how it is. And there are skills about that. There's a lot of material. Nonviolent communication as an approach has a lot of useful things. It's a formula essentially in its essence, but it's bigger than that. But the essence essentially is when, when, these, when these things happen that are factually described, I feel this way. My experience is. No praise, no blame. This is what I experience when that happens. Uh, because deep down, I, like you and everyone else, need such and such. I need to feel like I'm not getting used up by other people. I need to feel that my adult relationships are basically reciprocal. You know, even Stevens. You know, I, I, need to, I have a deep need to feel safe in relationships and that others are committed to telling the truth and playing fair. Without which, honestly, I've got to shrink the size of the relationship. And I want to understand what your fundamental commitments are. What can you be trusted for? What can, really? Is your word good? Do you really mean these words? Are you actually going to do it? If you agree to something and then you break the agreement, what are you going to do when I mention that to you? Can I trust you? And a lot in life, we're in situations, especially certain people who've been written into these roles socially, unfairly, uh, we're in situations where the size of the relationship is bigger than its authentic foundations in reality. 
which is like an inverted pyramid. It's tippy. It's unsafe. And we need to either expand the actual foundations for a relationship, which include trustworthiness and reliability and reciprocity. Tell the truth, play fair. We don't need to be best friends. Tell the truth, play fair. Otherwise, I can't get on the court with you. I can't go in, you know, you can't be in our politics if you don't tell the truth and play fair because we can't trust you. So there's that part. And then I'll just finish on this. Um, What do you do with people who won't repair with you? Right? They won't repair. They won't repair. Maybe something happened. Maybe they reject you. In so many families, there are strange estrangements that happen where people don't speak to each other and they won't repair. And what do you do then? And there's a process over time where you come to terms with that, where you, where you feel the pain of it. There's a grieving. There's a loss, right? Um, and you also deal with the primary first start of the rejection and the abandonment. And you feel it. And then often you'll come to the other side of that where you'll realize, wow, I feel it. And when I think about it, it hurts. But you know, it doesn't preoccupy me anymore. And um, I recognize that people do what they do. Is it given to me to escape being mistreated by other people? No. You know? It doesn't make it any less that I was mistreated, but I don't get to escape in this life being mistreated by other people. And there's something about the common humanity of that that is actually helpful and soothing. So I'll just say those things. Um, one last thing I'll say is that there's this term in evolutionary social psychology called altruistic punishment. It's a weird term. What it really means is where we take one for the team. Where, in other words, we think to ourselves, you know, I'm never going to get satisfaction from that person. They're never going to admit they did me dirt. They're never going to right this wrong. They're never going to repair here. They're never going to return my fill-in-the-blank, my lawnmower, my $20. They will never not have mistreated my kid or let my kid down in some situation. On the other hand, by creating a consequence for them of that I then function as a kind of justice, as an aspect of the justice system for the tribe, for the band, for, the, for humanity. And um, I can't change what they did to me. I'll never get justice. On the other hand, I can be a consequence here. And we have to be a little careful about that, about righteousness and grievance and getting caught up in that. But on the other hand, there is a place sometimes for just naming what actually happened. Or very often without even saying a word, looking at someone fearlessly. And for them, being seen by you is a real consequence. being seen clearly. And it reminds me of the story, if not the truth, of the Buddha's own night of awakening, where when the forces of evil which came in him, and the Buddhist frame is delusion, interesting frame of evil, that which is tricky or deceiving or lying. Hello? misinformation, disinformation, um, in the form of Mara. And the Buddha didn't go to war with Mara. He just looked at Mara in all his forms of illusion, touched the earth for support, drew the resource of the earth. I get to be here. I get to take my stand. I get to see you clearly. I see you, Mara. I see you for what you are. I see the lying. I see the selfishness. I see the smallness. And I see the 10,000 causes upstream of you that led 
you to do this in this way. I see all that. There's, I think, Howard Thurman, a African-American minister in L.A., has this line, seeing the world with quiet eyes. Right? The world may be noisy, but our eyes are quiet. I see you. That is a very powerful consequence sometimes. So we sometimes we step into altruistic punishment um, uh, for the sake of the greater good. Okay. Yeah. We have covered a lot of ground today. And I'm committed to ending really close to on time. I just want to say one final thing about fullness and balance. And this, the implications of the personal practices we've explored today for the larger community and society altogether may have already occurred to you. <clears throat> As individuals, build up resources inside. And as we individuals build up the sense inside of fullness and balance and peace, contentment, and love, people become a lot harder to manipulate in the classic ways that we've seen throughout history and in present times. A lot harder to manipulate with fear, greed, and us against them, grievances, and fantasies of vengeance, and actualities of vengeance. And to me, the opportunity for a critical mass of human brains to rest in the green zone most minutes and most days, I think it's about a billion, plus or minus, uh, could create a kind of tipping point that would change the course of history. And so one of the really inspiring things to think about and motivating for your own practice is the ways in which we practice for others too. Our own practice has ripple effects, seen and unseen, known and unknown, spreading out, hopefully to touch the whole wide world. So I want to thank you for your practice. I, I don't know most of you individually. I have felt your practice here. You've been unusually attentive in my experience of teaching groups. You're special. Take it in. <laughs> I want to thank you for the generosity of your attention and your practice. One of the forms of dana or generosity is practice. So thank you very much for your practice. And may you keep on practicing. Thank you. It's a wrap. If you want CEUs, be sure to sign out. If you want to join the stewardship circle, please do. If you want my slides, please sign up. Be well. Pet the lizard, feed the mouse, hug the monkey. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.